What's up, guys? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 33 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll get to hear from Julian and Sam of DabLogic. We talk a good amount about terpenes, their projects in both Colorado and California, strategic collaborations, breeders, the evolution of SHO, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. Shout out to our community on Patreon for their support and in many cases for their friendship. I'm thankful for all of you. As I've said before, I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to spend my time making this work. So thank you guys for allowing it to be a reality. We've recently dropped a few web episodes, which are exclusive to our community on Patreon. So if you want to support the podcast or listen to extra interviews or be part of the Hashishin chat, then use our link via our Instagram page at the Hashish in that's at the Hashish INN or visit us at patreon.com backslash the Hashish in. Shout out to another main reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors. Before I even start, I want to say I feel really blessed to work with good companies backed by good people that have good products. And my gig is really just to make you aware of them. Their products do the rest, starting with our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution. You know it, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you've worked so hard on cultivating your resin, why not use the most trusted rosin bags out there when pressing it? Blowouts are not fun and really costly. So when you press resin into rosin, you can find everything that you need at rosinevolution.com. And don't forget to use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com. They make the sleekest, highest grade rosin press on the market. They use all the highest quality components inside and out. They have a 4x8 pressing area. The platens themselves are 4x10, which means that you get that extra surface area to press more hash at once if you need, because if you have a lot of work to go through, in the end, time is money. So if you're in the market for a rosin press and you want to get the highest grade rosin press on the market, then visit the homies at powersplates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, to save $75 off their systems. Shout out to your Salmonless Apparel Company, Six Star Society, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com. They'll keep you looking fresh while rocking your love for the resin. I love wearing my Save by the Melt tee and all the conversations that it sparks. So come join Six Star Society at sixstarsociety.com or on their Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% with Six Star Society. And last but never least, our homies and sponsors, Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com. They'll help you battle condensation with their high-grade thermal jacketing systems, which are customizable in size, colors, and graphics. If you're a hash maker and you want to make your life easier, then check out all the innovations made specifically for you as a hash maker at pelepolareco.com or on their Instagram at pele underscore polare. And again, the 
And again, the savings code THI saves you 5% with them. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm elated to be here with Julian and Sam of DabLogic. You can follow them on Instagram at DabLogic. That's D-A-B-L-O-G-I-C. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, of course. You know, last time that we spoke, I got the vibe that you guys were that you guys were excited to share with people what you've been up to, as well as be able to answer some of the questions that you get from the public often, but also that you wanted to be transparent and open in this conversation because in part you feel that legalization is about giving people access to the plant. And in reference to hash making specifically, Sam, you mentioned the cold room tech being a gift to people all around the world because you said it liberated hash makers everywhere and that you love seeing people share this with each other and this knowledge kind of moving everywhere and expanding and changing and everybody kind of learning from each other. So I'm curious what you meant by that knowledge liberating hash makers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's just it is that anyone that grows for resin or grows resin at all, it is our birthright in that search and in that pursuit to captivate the resin to the best of our ability. I know that Julian has taught me and shared a tremendous amount of, you know, we call it tech, but it's really procedures and subtleties of working with resin, drying resin, pressing it, you know, all of the facets of our process are so subtle and it's often difficult to arrive at this proper procedure without the conversation, right? And being part of this greater conversation of hash making and and being able to look at just a photo of a resin on Instagram and have some idea of what took place to arrive at that specific point, you know, whether it's air dried or freeze dried or whether it's fresh pressed or, you know, been cured out a little bit longer or whether it's been reconstituted in some way, you know. And then to speak to the liberation, to anyone out there who has a set of bubble bags or a hair straightener or a rosin press, you know, to get to share the process and the discovery is a, is a is a gift. I mean, it's truly a gift. I was thinking about this this morning. You know, I, I read an article saying there's six six million pounds of cannabis in California this year, and I got to thinking. You know, well, I wonder how many of how much of that canopy is hash cultivars, and then I got to thinking. You know, I wonder what the the A grade rosin return on that is. And then I got to thinking, I wonder if you did a separation and extracted just the the terpenes 
just the essence left behind the THCA. Wonder how much liquid terpene that would be. And, uh, you know, it, it, by the time you do that, it might not even be all that much. We could run those numbers and get an idea. <laughs> so since you brought up California, one of the questions, Julian, you told me that you get a lot is what's up with your Logic California division? Because I'm assuming most people see you guys as being a Colorado-based company. So let's start there. Julian, Logic seems to have emerged from your exploration and connection to cannabis. And you have been operating in Colorado for a number of years. But now you have this division in Northern California, who's headed by your friend and colleague, Sam. So can you give us a little insight into why enter the California market? Yeah, I mean, California was kind of, you know, especially Northern California, it was, it was a place that people had went early on in order to preserve and, and grow cannabis and, and varieties of cannabis that they could grow up in Northern California were pretty, pretty immense. I mean, you can, you can pull down mid-November, you know, if all, if everything's great with the weather, if, if things are okay, you might get a little longer. It really, it really depends. But it's, if you want to grow a strain like GMO outdoor here in Colorado, for example, you have a really hard time. I mean, you have a hard time getting it to be fully mature. You'd have a hard time getting it to produce the, the strong essence behind it because you wouldn't be able to take it to its, its full term. It would, it would get too cold. Out in California, you can, you can grow a strain like GMO. You can pull that the first week of November, which is amazing. You can, you can, you can get the, the full maturity on these plants and, and kind of also harvest them in a similar, you know, I mean, the temperatures are, are cooler once it gets low once it gets later in the year, all those things. And that all adds into quality resin production and things like that. Whereas, you know, if you go somewhere that's hot and dry all year long, I mean, you could be dealing with, I get that, that climate at the end of the year that would actually start cooling down, the, you know, upper forties and things like that, that actually help these plants get to their full maturity actually help with the resin and all that type of stuff. But yeah, so California, I mean, it was, it was something that Verde was really interested in. They have a, the woman who kind of spearheaded the development of Verde's garden and the organic processes and, and things like that. Her name's Cassandra McAfee, really awesome person. She works with Haba Gardens currently. I think she runs and owns owns that garden here in Colorado on the western slope. But yeah, so she started the kind of cultivation efforts with Verde and she was from Northern California. She originally in Willow Creek area and all that. So she had a lot of friends and connections out here. And yeah, Verde bought a few properties out there and she helped kind of initially with securing those properties and helping us initially and then now she's since parted ways and is on her own thing now but so yeah um 
that was kind of a big reason why we initially went out to California and, you know, big thing with hash making, like Sam had mentioned is the correct cultivars and correct growing methodology, correct harvesting methodology, all that stuff. So when you go out and you try to buy material, let's say from someone or you're trying to get all these different third-party deals to, together that, that will supply you flour, the chances of that flour actually producing a quality resin are really slim. So that was the initial reason why, why partnering with Verde and why that whole thing happened is so that we could, we could have consistent access to quality flour and the varieties that we want and whatnot. So that, that, that was, that was kind of a good symbiotic relationship. And yeah, so we're kind of, we kind of followed Verde out there. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, definitely one of the things that I've picked up in talking to people for a few years now is that the material is the hardest thing and being able to source it from somewhere that you're working hand in hand with is so much more effective it seems like yeah i mean if you if you try to source material it's it's kind of funny you know even people who who believe that they're they're giving you fresh frozen or they're doing you know they they think they're doing it all properly but it's not really what's needed for solving this hash making i mean it's a it's a more in-depth process and it's a more thorough process and only again only certain varieties seem to really even work well with for, for resin yeah so so it's been a long you know different throughout the years it's it's been a, a lot of trial and error trying to trying to even figure out what these varieties are where they come from what are the lineage you know the, what's the genetic lineage behind these varieties what do they all have in common all those things it's taken years to develop kind of that map and if you go out into someone's garden chances are they have a lot of different modern hybrids that are probably more along the the hype strain type varieties gelatos and you know that kind of stuff and essentially those varieties aren't really bred with hash production that they weren't bred for hash production and most of them were actually bred against hash production just by the nature of of modern breeding techniques and the want of like wanting to go up to a bud and just have it just reek and smell in your nose like all those things are you know that was breeding against resin production yeah so so really having someone who you, you can partner with and get proper varieties and proper growing methodologies, harvest methodologies, freezing methodologies, storing methodologies. Uh, and actually that's somebody that will, will follow that protocol and to a T. I mean, that, that's, it's, it's hard to find out there, to be honest. So, and a lot of times you still have to do it yourself. So if you want to go get someone's material off their farm, chances are you, you may even have to go process that material and uh, freeze it yourself before they'll even let you get it just because they don't usually have the facilities and certain, you know, the, the uh, people power to really make it happen in the right way. So, right. And you've been out there how long now, Sam? It's been three years that I've 
so three seasons and you know there's lots of ups and downs and the you know as they call it the hill life is is a is a reality you know a lot of these farms are in really remote areas that are um just really impractical for freezing flour and it's a tremendous undertaking to preserve and flash freeze fresh cannabis flour we've done the best that we possibly can but you know that all of this always is evolving and you know we sometimes we talk about stuff like cryo tunnels and you know the this sort of the expansion of it but then at the same time it's like there has to be this sort of small batch handmade energy behind it the bigger the wash is the more out of control it it all becomes and to you know currently really enjoy hand stirring and really kind of adjusting that technique for each cultivar and and being gentle certain strains and then you know kind of more agitation towards the fourth or fifth wash just the art form of 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 making water hash is a really subtle thing i even like to talk about the practice of cleanliness before you start to clean so making sure that you whip out your your work bags and and don't leave a bunch of leaf or resin on them to grease up and just that whole practice of washing is a remarkable exercise and remarkable practice to share with uh with each other you know and it, it's it's the teamwork it's you know that that's really it is it takes a tremendous amount of people to pull this off you know it's it's really about that camaraderie and together action of everyone doing their best and doing their part to come out with this final product and to to showcase the the cultivar in the end and to allow someone to have a experience with cannabis is a is a is a phenomenal gift and are you releasing product in california yeah we we do have uh rosin on the market i won't i won't list off the shops just cuz i don't want to leave anybody out but we definitely have rosin and and solventless cartridges on the market here in california and uh and are going to continue to release and collaborate and move forward really passionate about some of these regenerative farms out there you know that are showcasing their terroir showcasing native soils showcasing closed loop regenerative practices you know i hear a lot about how much flower there is in in california right now but how much of that flower was grown sustainably how much of that flower was grown by farmers and and families with love and and tenderness you know that that's the most valuable flower to me it's is flower that are valuable or you know priceless truly flower that was that was grown with love i mean that's been a huge part of about of cannabis since i be- was first introduced to it was you know you would come across flower and you would say oh my gosh this was grown with love and that you know you would covet that that would be you know you could look at flower and 
in your head determine if it was grown with love just by the way that it glistened and the fact that it was taken care of and all the trichomes were intact and it wasn't all smashed together. And so, you know, I, I think pursuing that and supporting the people that pursue that is, is our, you know, is, is the way that we should all be heading and, and knowing, you know, the source of, of your material and the, the practices that your material underwent. Yeah. And I know that you were speaking of value in a different sense when speaking about working with these farms and being able to showcase, like you said, their methodologies and the land and the terroir, like you said, that influences their plants. But going back to the point that you made at the beginning of the podcast, uh, that you're reading the article with all this cannabis that's being grown and most of it, like you said, is likely not very high in terpenes. I'm assuming that the majority of the material that you are working with is the opposite. It's probably very high in terpenes. So in essence, it, it has also a monetary value uh, as well to it, I suppose. Yeah. You know, full sun flower really is high in terpene, especially if it's organically grown. I mean, there's no question about that. I, I regularly see 7% in rosin and that's with no separations, you know, I'm, I'm not adding any extra terp. That's just battered rosin six and 7%. We're also, we have a nice testing lab here. SC labs is, is nice to work with. They have a really big panel of terpenes and, uh, and we get, you know, comprehensive results from them. So it's amazing to get to look at, you know, to, to be able to identify these terpenes with your senses, with your nose, with, but then to also see the results and start to, okay, this is limonene dominant. Uh, oh, I, there's the myrcene in that. And, you know, that, that relationship is really, you know, we, I think down to the, someone who just bought a gram. I mean, I, I think the first thing we do is we bring it up to our nose and we smell, smell it. And, and that is sort of the beginning of our relationship with, with the extract or the concentrate or with the rosin. Um, I'll be careful with the word hash because, you know, what is hash? (laughs) (laughs) And I I love that that's what this show embodies is, you know, what is, what is hashish? So yeah, that relationship that instantly transforms from the smell into the experience of these these products, these compounds, these, um, yeah, I, I think I answered your question with that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely <laughs> think so too. Julian, going back to what you were saying earlier about being able to, for example, grow genetics in NorCal that just wouldn't be the same, for example, in a place like Colorado, what are some of the varieties that you guys are working with out there, are there any crossovers from like your Colorado facility as well? Or or is your NorCal division doing something a little different? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, that question, you know, it's, it's kind of a complicated question, but you know, here in Colorado, everything's grown for the most part indoors. We also have a greenhouse 
space here in Colorado as well that we grow in about 10,000 square feet of greenhouse and then another like 25,000 square foot of indoor. So we still are able to kind of take these varieties, say GMO or say our hazelnut cream or some of these varieties that need to go longer. We're still able to kind of do that just by having them indoors. We're, we're able to let them go their full term and and put them together in rooms that that all the plants are um, longer flowering and whatnot. So that way it, it all lines up and that whole room can go longer. But as far as like strains and things like that, like we in California, we actually, we work with a lot of BioVortex genetics. We work with a lot of his different varieties and we do those, a lot of those from seed. We do preserve from plants that, you know, some of the, the more standout phenotypes and things like that, but we're still planting a lot of seed every year from a lot of the, a lot of the property out there. Clones that we run, yes, there are some, some overlaps of clones that have came, you know, through different means and whatnot, but, but those are traditionally smaller numbers you know we're not running a ton of 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 clone out there just just because that's not necessarily the the way that it 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 fully works but yeah so so here and then here in colorado we're we're working with a lot of uh top dog genetics currently we we run a lot of a lot of different stuff here in colorado we have the the kemi jones which is the sour d chem d or chem d sour d train wreck tie and that one's yeah phenomenal it's like some of the stinkiest hash and hardest hitting hash you'll ever smoke you know and i can't believe it's hard to find anything like that out there we have the hazelnut cream uh, the miami haze cookies and cream it's a really nice strong variety that one does need to go longer because of the haze genetics in it kind of like that cheesy profile and you know again a lot of a lot of the varieties we have like we're either pheno hunted or or were were given to us by you know other people who who were trying to do resin work or who are trying to preserve varieties that were unique and special so it's really a, a large it's a large effort by a lot of people you know a lot of different growers and a lot of different hands and a lot of different farms and from a lot of different places and who knows where you know I, I don't even want to go into the real specifics of a lot of that but but yeah it's an immense amount of effort by by wonderful people and who are, who are trying to really just showcase the best cannabis and I think that's that's what separates I think a, a, a lot of varieties that we choose to work with is is that they're they are some of the best varieties they are you know, and they continue to prove themselves and, and win awards and things like that. So they're, yeah, they're, they're amazing. And that's why we continue to work with them. And that's why it's hard to, to add more things to the arsenal that, unless they're extremely stand out. So hence why we have to go through, you know, large numbers of seed when we do go through seed and which we constantly are to pull out these unique varieties. Yeah. That's something that we spoke about a little bit last time was you working with specific breeders and you mentioned, for example, in Colorado, teaming up with top dog and using a lot of bio vortex gear in NorCal 
And I thought it was an interesting point in that you are seeking different types of profiles. And obviously those two breeders seem to be very different, but there's something to each of their work that attracts you to look through those gene pools. So let's talk about a strain that we talked a little bit about last time. Sam, I think you called it the G-Mob. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, G-Mob, yeah. And it's a GMO cross to, is it the banana OG or the, what was the cross on that? Yeah, G-Mob's got banana OG in it. A lot of Jesse's work is a culmination of, of, of crosses that he's developed. The GMOB was really cool in that it had a lot of different expressions. Sometimes it would be kind of like kind of SFV OG dominant. Other phenos were banana dominant. And then there, there was definitely like a clear GMO kind of almost that uh, halitosis style profile. So we searched through a few hundred of those plants and found some different higher yielding varieties. One of them even a test wash tested at as high as 8% and selected those and then grew them again this season in actually in the, the light depth. So, but we're also doing more seed run of the, of the G mob and going to continue to kind of search through those seeds. And uh, there's a mandarin cherry lime dog that I'm excited about to search through and then do it again in depth or um, potentially full sun as well. Um, And again, you know, the hazelnut cream, this was the first season that we got to see hazelnut cream under the the natural sun and uh, it, Tremendous. It's an amazing plant. As we always say, some of these plants sort of work, do the work for you. Obviously, everyone knows GMO is one of those strains where when you go to clean out the the work bags, there's no coagulated resin on it because those, those glands are so resilient. It's such a pleasure to work with something like that. It really does the work for you. In the Miami Haze, well, actually, the hazelnut cream, which in part is the Miami haze that you grew out in California, was that given more time because it was out there? Did it was that part of why you think it expressed a little differently? It, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I I was actually kind of amazed at how quickly it finished, and you know, it, there's so many contributing factors to that. This season, you know, the depth of soil, all these, all these factors, it'd be hard to speculate, but it definitely was very loud in its smell and, and just did really well under the sun. It's, it's exciting to see strains that we ran in Colorado starting to appear out here. I think that what Julian's working on now um, eventually we'd, we'd love to have, have some of that seed work out here as well and, and possibly do some crosses with, with some of the genetics that we've already uh, saved out here, potentially the G-Mob and, and, and really just continue to mix it up and continue to search uh, these varieties. I mean, that, that's really one of the most exciting parts about 
the progression of, of solventless work is that everyone's out there, you know, evolving it. And each year we, we get to, to see all these new expressions. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to talk about what Julian is working on in Colorado. And I don't necessarily mean to harp on the point of the GMOB, but a few things kind of pique my interest. One, I know people who are watching the 8% is going to pique their interest, but a few things. One, that was full sun, right? Correct. And then you told me something that really kind of stood out to me. And you said out of that 8%, I think you said like 2% is what you would call A-grade rosin. I think I was looking at the, that data. I think it was actually as high as 2.7% A-grade return. And that's all the way down to like package. That's with the loss that's left over in the jar. That's end results. And again, that comes back to only using 90 through 120 in the final rosin. You know, my experience with the 70U is that it's generally not as, say, robust in its sort of appearance and and uh, and terpene profile as the 90 through 120. And in GMOB's case, uh, the heads were even larger, so 160 ended up in that, in that production yield, in that yield data. And so in that case, I'm curious, obviously there's some loss in the process of like making it rosin, but what happens to this other like 6%? So in the, in the, in the case of GMOB, a lot of that is at the facility still and Ideally, we would we would work work it into an edible, um, if possible. You know that's something that we're we're excited to explore. Generally, the the darker resin, you know, we 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 call it negredo, you know, and it, it's we just call it food grade, and it it kind of starts to stack up after a while. Super, you know, stocky and just not not something that we want to put out in in the final product. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just curious because edibles does seem to be like a good market for these solventless that maybe aren't ideal for vaporizing. Correct. Correct. And, you know, if you've ever experienced micron specific hash and, you know, smoke, say, 40U hash, it, it has a minty, stocky presence to it. You know, it, again, it's just, I won't say that there's no place for full spectrum hash I, I or for full spectrum rosin. I'm not going to say that. I, I just, it, it's, it's ideal when someone's paying top dollar for rosin. It's, it's really nice to give them the loudest of the batch. And, and that's just a, a practice that Julian has, has always, um, pursued. Yeah, I have a bunch of questions for Julian, but I feel like this is a good opportunity for a first smoke break. Are you guys cool with that? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, cool. I'm actually going to let you guys uh, go ahead and take a dab. And while I take a chance to thank our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best rosin bags in the game, you can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. 
if you make rosin and you want well-made, reliable rosin bags, or you wash hash and you want the best deal on the market on their full mesh wash bags, then check out Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com for anything rosin and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, the number 710, that's T-H-I-710 to save 5%. We appreciate their continued support as well as yours for listening. Now back to the episode. So Julian, let's talk about what you've called the guiding force behind the cannabis domino effect, terpenes, which is something that I feel that you guys are really embracing, which is looking at these profiles more so than necessarily focusing on the variety or the cultivar, although obviously they go hand in hand, because in the end, the combination and ratios of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and whatever else is in there is what makes each of these plants unique. And I find it interesting that both you and Sam uh, connected, I think, foraging for morsels, because again, it's something that is valued for like a, their deep flavor. And it seems like that logic is definitely looking into expressing and furthering the depth of flavor and effect in your work. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you bring up a lot of great, great points in that. And uh, yeah, I, I think terpenes play a major role, obviously, in the effects, but also how cannabinoids uh, become bioavailable to the body, how, you know, how they affect you and the cascade essentially down the line that, you know, happens when different enzymes or whatever become affected by different terpenes or cannabinoids. And I mean, just start right off the bat, you know, TH, THC, like what, what is it doing, right? What is it doing in the brain, in the body? Why do you feel the, the high effect that you feel? And that begins with, you know, the endocannabinoid system and, and essentially the release of endogenous cannabinoids occur when you use THC. So THC enters into the bloodstream, all of a sudden and dandamide and 2-AG and all these different endocannabinoids are released into the body and into the brain. And what happens is, is when that when when CB ones say activated, right? When CB ones activated, you get a you get a release of dopamine. So dopamine is the the love molecule. It is the it's the connection. It's what brings us in into connection with others. It's the the feeling we get when we're having a great conversation with a colleague or a friend or a loved one. It's the same effects, you know, that you, that, that it's the same chemicals released, you know, along with epinephrine and, you know, adrenaline and all these different things as well. It's not the only one released, but it's, you know, these are the ones that are released, like, to feel good. And, you know, and dandamide, it literally means it's Sanskrit and it, and it, and it, and it means the bliss molecule. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of just what it, what it was designed to do. And traditionally, you know, if you look back at tradition and where cannabis comes from and Southeast Asia and whatnot, you know, 
legend has it, you know, that a lot of this, a lot of these varieties are preserved by Buddhists. And, and again, you know, people with deep connection and, and, and reverence and all of these things, right? So it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's an enhancer of, of bliss and, and happiness. So, so when you look at cannabis now and you say, okay, so how come one with this THC and this one with this THC, they have the same THC, right? Let's just say it's 25%. How come one gets me high and makes me fall asleep? How come the other one doesn't? You know, that type of thing. And you start to recognize, okay, there's, there's a difference in terpenes. And, you know, we think, okay, all of these terpenes must have some crazy neurological effect, but they don't, you know, a few of them really play the major roles in the overall effectiveness. Hence why cannabis has been bred to mainly produce these specific terpenes because they could produce really whatever we want, but, but we've bred them to produce, you know, this kind of array that we have currently to play with psychoactivity and you know you have compounds you know uh, you have like some of these hard spice compounds some of these like uh god i'm spacing it now like beta caryophylline or something like that right so let's just take that that one for example that's a major terpene found in cannabis in a lot of different forms and or in a lot of different compounds concentrations um beta caryophylline is also uh humulene is, in, is is a derivative of beta caryophylline i think that's uh, alpha caryophylline if i'm not mistaken and uh so, so those compounds actually interact with the cb2 receptor and when cb2 receptor gets let's just say activated here it actually kind of has a reverse counteractive effect on the psychoactivity of thc so why you wouldn't maybe get paranoid or why you wouldn't get like super edgy, right? Because THC traditionally, if you smoke it pure, it's pretty edgy. But again, then, you know, things like limonene or pinene, for example, you know, limonene is super real thin, thin viscosity. It's, it's, it's going to actually just help enhance the bioavailability of THC and passing through the blood-brain barrier. So that's limonene is going to actually enhance the effect of THC. So now you're going to get, that's where more of that psychoactivity comes from. And which is why, you know, when we look at like the chem dog varieties, like that, these really potent varieties, you traditionally see like their highest terpene is limonene. And occasionally not, I'm not saying this is always the case, but for the most part. So you just begin to kind of look at those, those things and, maybe we're not necessarily looking at just psychoactivity here so now we're trying to say like okay well how does that stuff taste right like they carry a filing like i said like hard spice black pepper that that type of like you know cardamom chai type smells things like that and that you told me you felt got really popularized for example with like a girl scout cookies and that yeah, hitting yeah. the market and that's something that you would actually like to maybe go away from. Yeah. And I mean, Girl Scout cookies has many, you know, and, and the hybrids created with it have many great, uh, there's, there's, um, there's many great creations. I mean, GMO is one of them. And I mean, the hazelnut cream, you know, the cookies and cream is another one, you know, it's, it's not to say that they're, 
that there's something wrong with it. It's just like traditionally, you know, cookies. These are more like high beta filing limonene, myrcene dominant varieties. They're gonna maybe have a little linalool in them. And a lot of them are going to, a lot of the hybrids, since they're now edging into like this eighth, ninth generation of, of inbred line, essentially, because it's just one thing crossed to another, crossed to another, crossed to another, you know? So it's just like, now we're edging into that. So now it's becoming homogenous. So I think that's the real, the real downside here. It's like, we need to see like some kind of creativity happen because if people are so excited about terpenes, you know, which I know they are, then how could we think that we're just going to keep pulling different things by just crossing the same stuff over and over? So it's like really breeders who are preserving lineages or who are breeding with, with things outside of just the modern day hybrids are very interesting to us and or to me specifically. I, I really, really, you know, am impressed with breeders who, you know, can take land race or you know domesticated varieties like semi-domesticated varieties and and like do something unique with them you know like Bodhi is a great example of that he does so much great work and uh, it's 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 kind of crazy you know so but yeah so JJ does a lot of this work with uh with Top Dog you know he's doing a lot of a haze lineage a lot of the old school like Neville stuff he's going through a lot of different land race varieties he really loves preserving the chem line and, you know, because he knows the potency behind that because it's like, yeah, you can smoke cookies and it's 30%. Why can I smoke chem at 25 or whatever, let's just say. And it, and it hits me so much more, it's so much stronger, you know, and why also, you know, I mean, there's just so many questions, right? So, and you can go down that rabbit hole. It's like, and, and what do most of these things have in common anyway, right? The, the, the commonality factor in, in most of this stuff that we're looking at for hash variety um, is the chem lineage. And that's probably because it's been the closest source of like Afghani hash varieties that we've had in preservation for in modern day so it's like you know do you can you still find steve's afghani like yeah maybe you can go buy the todd mccormick re-release nl5 or nl2 or whatever like now that uh, you couldn't find that before you know and that in that nl is that, that you know who, who knows so you know because i'm under the impression that essentially camo g these things are you know they're probably some nl in there there's probably some hash plant in there and a lot of those things you know go back to obviously afghan origin you know the hash plant potentially lebanese nepalese origin with afghan origin as well so it's like looking into that you know and seeing why why these things produce it you know you look at the cookies and you say okay cherry pie uh, OG Kush or whatever, and say, oh, Cherry Pie can be F1 Durban. OG Kush really is what you're talking about here. So it's like, I mean, you know, the, the commonality I think has been and is the Chem D. And I, and, I, and I don't think Chem D is just gas either. I don't think all hybrids built from Chem D are going to be are going to be gas or are going to be like that type of terpene. No, they they edge in the crazy realms. I mean, these things are maple and sandalwood and frankincense and 
uh, agar wood and like uh, sassafras and like just crazy terpenes that are we're not playing with here very much you know and, and they they go obviously the, the different gases that can be produced the garlics the onions and the body odors the curries the all that the, the skunks you know that array and then it can also lean into and edge into like some of this like grapefruit some of this like citrus kind of realm you know where it's like the guavas in there and all that kind of stuff so it's like it really is it's 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 the best tool so 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 and it's and it's one of the oldest most original tools so it's not hampered down by all this modern hybrid inbred you know lineage that's making everything homogenous right so that's why we've really why i've selected two and like had this partnership with jj's and why i think it's so important is is to build these hash varieties like how many people have seen you know a 35 percent you know no cookies cross you know because i don't think it's very many it's 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 very few and to find those it's you're running thousands of seeds and, and you're running tests and things like that so it's it, it's pretty it's a pretty intense process and again it takes a lot of people you know a lot of work it's not it's not just us here i mean there's so many amazing people from growers and harvesters and you know the dry cure and like everybody they're they're all people who care and who really love these things and want to see this develop and want to see this want to see what this whole thing has to offer here so and again you know the haze why do why do a lot of the you know why, why can you find we can go on forever but you know you can go into the haze lineage now and you can say what do we, what do you find out of there? You know, when you look at like everything from like carrots, celery, uh, again, into those like incense, like the leathers, the, um, myrrh, the, you know, these really like almost paint thinner and like cat piss and ammonia and like all that kind of stuff. And like, you, you, you just get like a lot to play with. That's outside of like bubble gum or which is what most of the berry and the fruit and all that stuff most of it just has like that strawberry that bubble gum that blueberry it's all kind of like that that berry that high mirror scene you know that's really what what you're seeing so it's like so yeah so it's it's real interesting you know and then you can go like trop trop why doesn't trop you know nobody can get people don't get high on trop you know that's not a thing so it's like why is that it's and, and you look at that lineage and you look at where that comes from and again cookies you know skunk you know that tangy line that skunk again you know leading into that citrus realm right so again why the chem can lead in citrus is that same very reason that the skunk the tangy that stuff could lead in citrus right so it's in the haze that, that that's produced that's in there and all that stuff so it's I mean, there's there's a lot to look at, and if you're looking at gelato and sherbet and wedding cake, you're not really going to see it because it's just like all the same stuff. It's going to be really hard to find it. You're not gonna your 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 ballpark's not really like super wide, and even if you carry 16 different strains that all yield over four percent, that's great, you know. But they're all going to get you the same effect. They're all, not, you know, they're all going to have that kind of similar profile in the background. They're all literally like, you know, you're going to be like, oh, why does all of this so-and-so stuff all smell the same? Oh, it's because they all run the same type of cultivar, you know? But yeah, so 
that's just a little bit kind of the work we're doing. So we're, we're digging through JJ's stuff and, and you know, he's been such a pleasure and it's been such an honor to work with him and, and actually go through like this chem lineage and see what, what some of these, these, uh, these, what a big gene pool of this stuff looks like and some of the haze varieties and see what a big gene pool of that looks like and some of the skunk stuff and see what a big gene pool of that stuff looks like and some of the OG stuff and see what a big gene pool of that like it's like really going from those 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 bases and finding like the super crazy unique stuff out of there and then moving forward with it so yeah that's super interesting I told you guys before we spoke last time that I just happened to hear one of the latest podcasts and it was with JJ of top dogs. And he mentioned uh, partnering with Verde and doing this work. Uh, and obviously you guys, like you spoke earlier are connected and we can talk about obviously that relationship a little bit down the line, but one of the things that he mentioned and I'm paraphrasing here, but is that he found it interesting or kind of impressive that you guys were willing to take the space and the resources and the time and all the things that come with that to do this type of pheno hunting, to do R&D work. And you mentioned to me last time that we spoke that you at the Colorado facility, at least maybe the indoor, because I know you said earlier you do some light depths. Uh, you guys have 13 rooms and you have a perpetual harvest weekly, if not sometimes bi-weekly. So give us a picture as to what happens in those 13 rooms and also what like the purpose of those 13 rooms is outside of obviously growing cannabis. How much of that space is given to R&D? Yeah, I know that's a great question. Yeah, so they, Verde, Verde is doing an awesome job and really just trying to go full force and do a lot of this breeding work, which has been super instrumental because you do need kind of a lot of room and especially like, yeah, a lot of people say, oh yeah, just if you can't find it from a temp pack, it wasn't good. Well, I'm not really in that same mindset because trying to find a washer out of a 10 pack is like damn near impossible. You know, <laughs> I, you can ask a lot of people, you know, try to access, if you don't know anyone, try to access a washing strain, you know, like that's hard. That's really, really, really hard to do. And getting your first washing strain, it's like the biggest gift in the world, you know? And if you, you know, and did, you know, that, and you selected that yourself, like mad props, because that is like a ton, a ton of work, you know? So it's like, yeah, Verde is putting a ton of space, you know, they are devoting three, 4,000 square feet of space for breeding efforts and for going through these, going through these varieties. And that, that happens. It's, you know, they pull a harvest because it's indoor. We're able to, we're able to pull a harvest every two months. We're able to go through five, 600 varieties every two months with what we currently have, you know? So it's, it's, it's quite nice. And especially if you kind of can hone down on what you're really looking for and what you're going after and what lineage lineages and which breeders, you know, produce these, these varieties, you can, you can kind of hone that in and, and start doing the work, but you also find that like the work isn't just in finding a female washer, right? If you're looking to breed a fixed, a fixed hash line, or if you're breeding to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to actually make 
stuff wash, right? Like, let's just say that to do that work, there's, it's multifaceted, you know, there's so many genes that contribute to washability that you're not just selecting for one thing. It's not just like, oh, we're selecting for cuticle size or we're selecting for secretory cell release or, you know, I mean, those are all things you can and will be great to select for and are a part of it, but it's not just that, you know, and there's trichome head size and density and, and there's also, you know, what's contained in the trichome head, right? The phospholipid and sugars and things like that. So it's like what's in there and how much and what concentrations and all that stuff. And, you know, and then also breeding, like, right, like I said, we've been breeding against, against some of that hash producing kind of stuff. So anyways, but uh, yeah, Verde uses essentially those flower rooms, those 13 flower rooms, pretty much every room contains or will contain depending on where it's at at least you know 10 or so phenotypes outside of the the breeding section just so they can see once once phenos kind of pass selection we'd move them into that type of indoor production style stuff and then we can actually see how they perform like on a bigger scale um, when you see like 10 plants or 15 plants of a certain variety or of a certain phenotype, see how that performs. So that's kind of how that works. Um, the rest of the room is obviously dedicated. Verde sells, you know, their flower. They have an in-house flower. They sell at their, sh- at their shops here in Denver, uh, one in Denver and one in Boulder, um, one on East Colfax in Denver, and then the other one's on West Pearl Street in Boulder. And yeah, they half the room goes to flower and then the other half of the room goes to dab logic for water hash production. So they, you know, basically get around I mean, every week it's around 120,000, 140,000 fresh grams to dab logic of materials. So that's, you know, divided between a few different varieties that we we select to go into those rooms so and then their teams you know obviously do the do the harvest and they they do the the fresh frozen prep and all that stuff and we use a cryogenic freezer and get everything cold like really really fast and everything's chopped down and bagged up within 20 minutes and um yeah, so that's kind of the process in there, and then everything's stored in, in a negative 10 walk-in. From there, we typically don't, it doesn't sit for long, maybe a day or two before it makes its way then into the lab for actual for actual production on that, on that batch or on those batches. And we wash anywhere from, we wash about 60,000 grams at a time, and that can be divided between you know, three strains, let's say, so 20,000 grams of each variety. And yeah, it's kind of how that's broken down and how that works out. And so that's why every week you only see, right? Like why does, it's like every month there's basically eight varieties released from Dab Logic, And that's because there's essentially two or more than eight, but like up, there's a minimum of eight, eight to 16, right? Varieties on any given month and that's just due to that we're only washing you know three varieties 
you know, six varieties a week at most. So, right. And to contrast that a little, Sam, since you don't have, for example, this same kind of purpose per se, or like seeking maybe through uh, top jogs genetics or uh, maybe not even having the space, what does your cycles look like? And then also, how do you go about test washing all this stuff? Because Julian mentioned last time, obviously that's part of the process is just going through and doing this kind of raw test of, of resin production. Mm. Yeah, I think walking through the field close to harvest and sort of identifying the sandier resin plants was sort of historically how we would select hash cultivars. But that kind of evolved into more of a scientific approach and really keeping a clone of each seed plant and individually test washing sort of a section of the plant. Like maybe if you cut the plant into quarters, you would, you know, if it's a smaller plant, like in the depths, you know, I'll do a, a quarter of a plant in a test wash to kind of get an accurate representation of the yields and the quality and the color of the resin. A cycle, obviously, for us is a season, and and you know that's that's really an intense setting here in Humboldt. Is you know, croptober they call it. You know, once October comes, it's joyous, and and people are excited to work. You know, day and night during harvest, and and there's a real buzz in the air in in this area in Northern California during during harvest time. Um, it's tremendous undertaking to fee- to freeze an acre of cannabis. I mean that that is just uh, you know tremendous and requires a team of people that are dedicated and passionate about quality and to maintain that that process through each batch and and, and freezing things properly. Not to mention just the undertaking of the season alone in a remote area to then at the end of it have to have to also harvest you know it's it's not for everyone i will say it's a it's very intense i think that answered your your question there yeah and julian can you give us a little more uh on your washing process cuz you mentioned it to me last time we spoke and I don't remember exactly how it was, but it was kind of like a funnel system. And it's really just to see uh, how much this stuff is producing, if, if it's even worth, I guess, yeah. for pursuing, you know? Yeah. So out here, I mean, just because we're running through, we have to run through like four or 500 samples. Uh, and we have to get that turned around like in a quick, like two week period. So it's out here, we have a, Buchner system, a Buchner funnel system that we've kind of set up where it's kind of all piped together in kind of like a ring, kind of like a U-shaped or, you know, like type deal. And there's five funnels on one side, five funnels on the other side, 10 funnels. They're each loaded with a 25 micron screen, just 
because that's like the smallest micron. And we're sometimes we're dealing with CBD, CBG, THCV. We might be dealing with like different and unique cannabinoids and things like that. So we just want to make sure we're, we're going straight down to the, to the final bag. And then we use a really crude, like 300 micron uh, cover that we essentially put over the top of them. And everything, you, we take 50 grams wet. It's put into a jar with a thousand milliliters of water. It's been chilled, really cold. It, it has ice in it. And we, we, you know, we filter out the ice before we put in the thousand mils just so that it's, you know, we don't, we're not catching any resin or anything like that. Not that it really does just because it's hydrophobic and it's kind of running away from the ice, but regardless. So yeah, you put a thousand mils into, into the jar, you kind of agitate it for about, you know, you let it, you, you do your process like, you know, I, I usually do a, a small uh, settle, or a, an initial kind of waiting period where it's kind of settling and it's kind of soaking and kind of getting the material kind of wet and not necessarily so like frozen and brittle like it comes. And then from there, it's agitated for about 10 minutes-ish. Um, and then it's directly poured out through the, into the funnel the funnel systems, you know, pulled through, there's a little vacuum on the end. There's a big collection reservoir for the water and whatnot. And it basically just thousand mils fits right in the top of the funnel. You just pour it right in, boom, comes right out. And then you have your, your weight on that pole. Cause you pre-weighed the mesh and you, you know, with the mesh weight, and then you just stick the mesh in the freeze dryer and let it dry. And you can run, you know, a hundred samples or so, maybe even more depending on the size of your team or how many people you have working on it, but about a hundred samples in a day. So you can kind of crank out like a full 500 plant room in you know, a week, let's just say, give or take some dry time and whatnot. And then all of those go through, they get weighed. Um, and then they actually get pressed, actually press everything to see, uh, like kind of oil concentration, purity, things like that just because it's a really straightforward kind of scientific way to do it. And we can just kind of put a number to it and we can send those out for testing. If they're worth it. We kind of just go through those samples, uh, find out of those samples, you know, look at the numbers, look at the terpenes, things like that. And then those varieties, we go back into the garden, take those selections and then move those selections. Some of those selections and make their way into production. Other pieces of those selections may not be for production. They might just be like tools for breeding. So then they work their way into like a breeding schedule. So then those plants, if they're, if they're selected for breeding based on washability, terpenes, you know, unique traits, all this kind of stuff. They, we have three different breeding chambers that are built out. They're about eight by eight you know, fully built out rooms with mini splits and like full, you know, humidity and all that, you know, control in it and stuff that we run LEDs in those rooms and we cross them essentially to males that we've been testing offspring of from. So essentially like if we cross a male, we preserve and save the male, we run the offspring we see if that offspring is any good. If it's good, then that male has potential and then we can work that male into a line that we're pretty certain, you know, I mean, we're, we see an increase, you know, so it's, it's, it's gonna, you know, it's a matter of time where we're, we're kind of in the infancy of this. We've been working on it for about a year, a um, little over a year. So it's just kind of getting started on this project. So 
Yeah, yeah. you said earlier, so many good points in there. One of the things that kind of stands out is in in talking to both of you is the testing. Obviously, the testing is playing a big role in this. And you mentioned that, you know, once it gets sent out for testing, that's kind of part of where it makes that first cut. So what are the things that you're looking for to even you know, take it a step further, for example. Yeah. I mean, you're always looking for unique cannabinoids. It's kind of hard with terpenes just because the panel isn't always the biggest. So you're looking only, you know, a lot of these testing companies are only giving you 20, 20 different terpenes. And a lot of those are different isomers and stuff. So you're really only getting like 15 actual different terpenes. And then there's other ones like SC labs or like RM3 here in Colorado and whatnot. Like, they test for 42 different, you know, terpene slash isomers. So it's that, you know, if you send them out to them, now you can start getting a better idea of like maybe some unique terpenes that you're not necessarily seeing in other varieties. And what you're trying to look for is like pushing limits on those, right? So like if it's always sitting at 1% or a half percent of this specific terpene or a quarter percent or 0.1% or whatever it is, right? Like, it's to push that forward and see like, okay, can I move this one up a little bit? Can I move it to point two? Can I move it to point three? And if I do, what is it, what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? What is it, how does it grow? Because that's even going to change growth and, and resistance and all these different traits that the plant uses for walking and coping with its environment. Right. So yeah, so you know you're looking for those, and then you're you, you know you need cannabinoids in, in, in different concentrations, and then you know you're also just looking for for potencies, especially when you're looking for hash varieties. You're looking to edge into higher limits, although that's not always true. Like I've I've found plants that are fifteen percent THC, like literally, and they no other cannabinoid. You know these are some like skunks, old skunks, right? And you wash them and all of that resin comes off and it's mostly all oil and it presses, like it's all, it's like oil. So it's like sometimes that can actually be more because, you know, in some of these varieties, if you're pulling more stock or if they're stockier, if they're not as big a trichome heads or if the glands aren't as full or all these different variables, right? Like you might think you're pulling a high yield off it but in reality like how much of it is like you know just what sam was saying earlier like how much of it actually goes to like the a grade the smokable like the stuff that people actually like which is essentially really only your 120 and your 90 you know and maybe your your 160 like some of these varieties yeah 160 is very prevalent but like it's once it's like 160 through 90 you know that are just those are the phenomenal heads those are like the the best ones so it's can always come out clear and, and cl- or clean and always come out pure and always have this like they're just at that higher level and they're they're denser and they're they weigh more and they just because they are they're they're more pure oil right so it's like you you're looking when I look at half it's like oil concentration I mean that's what you're really trying to determine here if you see like some of this chalky looking stuff chances are it's chalky or dry looking stuff or whatever it is or stable looking stuff or whatever you have it 
chances are the reason that is is because either stable if it's stable it's low, probably low in terpenes really high in thc you know if it's chalky it's probably got a lot of stock you know if it's like uh you know there's just you want to see that stuff like oily and you want to see it almost like kind of like do that you know and not to say you want it to like fully melt out because some of those varieties like the durbin for example or some of those like not that dirt it's not dirt it's really jack you know right these jack herrera type terpene varieties that have terpene concentration those ones you're always going to get you know, an oily, super oily trichome head with with high terpene strains. It's just going to be like wet. You might, you know, it's those plants that you go up to and you touch them, and they they leave like a wet mark on your hand, right? But like a, a hash plant, traditionally you go up and touch it, and it may be like kind of sticky or maybe kind of that. But like you're going to go look on your fingertips, and there's going to be like trichome heads covering your your fingertips you know and they're going to be like glistening and there's going to be you know you look at like the density how many are on your fingers you know those are simple things without even having to have access to tests that people can do that they could just say like i'm looking for a plant that when i touch it it's not greasy it's more resilient and i can actually see the trichomes on the end of my finger that's what you're looking for when you're looking for a hash plant yeah, and I thought another good point that Sam brought up that has been brought up by other guests in the past. I don't know about this particular measurement, but you I think you said milligrams per square meter, Sam, is the way that you mm. would see, uh, you know, basically the essence of trichome farming. Because, Julian, you're talking about what's inside these trichomes, but at the same time, there needs to be, it seems like, a decent amount of these trichomes as well mm. yeah tr i mean trichome density it it brings up a lot of variables i think julian and i were talking about like the actual cubic yield you know of a plant verse versus just instead of square footage you know what's what's the cubic yield of say an og and yeah. how that correlates with the the yield data right if if there's a lot more of it there and it is yielding a little lower isn't it making up for that fact uh julian has an amazing way of explaining this i should i should let him handle it <laughs> yes i mean it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a complex question because you're, you're right. You're like saying, okay, milligrams per square foot or milligrams per cubic meter is really what the measurement is. Right. So like, but it's like, when you're looking at that, it doesn't, it's not necessarily just milligrams of hash per cubic meter. It's more like actual milligrams of sellable a grade material per cubic meter, you know? So like, of smokable A-grade material per cubic meter, you know? You could have a plant that, yeah, produces a lot of hash in this area and it produces a lot of biomass, but then when you actually go and you see that 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 hash at the end, like, is it really oil? Does it really melt? Is it really, like, head, you know, like that heady stuff that's, like, six-star and clear and, like, kind of doesn't leave the residue and all that jazz, right? Like, like that's that's rare, you know. When you when you're looking for an ice oil plant, like a real plant, you know, that's something that's worth. That's what's that's what's actually worth something here, you know. Like, and that's the hard part with a lot of these breeders, again, because 
they don't have access to test wash all these varieties and they're going off smells and they're, you know, they're just trying to like find these strong, really strong, strong aromas that are on the plant. And chances are, again, like I was saying earlier, you're breeding for this really super strong aroma. Chances are you're breeding for a really thin trichome head. It's not really going to perform very well in water hash extraction. And then also chances are you're actually breeding. Like, so here, here's the real thing here, right? So you have, uh, so, so there's this, there's secretory cells that are essentially what create the, the trichome, what pump, pump cannabinoids and terpenes and, and also uh, basically the precursors of those in, into the trichome head. And they're released at this secretory cell on this gland, this little gland. And some of these glands, they, they either produce the terpene within the gland or they produce and create it outside on the outside of the gland. So you're, that, that's another you know, major kind of thing you're looking at when you're looking and breeding for resin production. Um, and when you're looking for, when you're looking at this, you know, uh, milligrams per square meter, you know, and it's milligrams of real resin per uh, meter squared. So it's, uh, or per meter cubed, sorry. So it, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of complex, and yeah, you have to run your varieties. It's not something that you're gonna be you're you're really gonna be able to know. And to tell you the truth, if I give you a variety and you don't grow it the same way, or if you're not if you don't know how to grow it properly, or if you don't know what you're doing, chances are you may not even that variety will perform half of what I told you it would. You know, so it's it's really a lot of complex things at work but you know again which is why it's it's great to to find you know breeders who 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 are at least trying and, and working on these efforts you know and some of these breeders are you know just in just in obviously breeders that, that we've already talked about you know top dog jesse from biovortex you know and then you know obviously there's other people out there there's you know, archive c bank uh and, and archive genetic you know their their work super crazy you know high potencies and but again a lot of that stuff is cookie and breadline type type work so um you kind of have to find those unique unique crosses that are being made with with that from him and then uh exotic genetics kind of same thing again you know a lot of that cookies kind of line and bread work but but yeah really unique stuff every once in a while just like the the, the hazelnut cream with the miami haze and the cookies and that you know that that like that unique kind of those varieties are the ones that really will will stand out and then can find something special in so yeah so obviously the genetic component has a lot to do with it or the genetic potential but as well you brought up the cultivation practices or what i kind of amount you know amounted to that which obviously there's other and lots of other factors but it seems like to me that's part of the reason that you enjoy working so much uh, with Verde is because they do have a living soil indoor system. And from what I can gather, you really seem to feel that a lot of these terpenes are coming from providing these plants the ideal type of environment. Yeah, no, I mean, it's if you give them kind of like this full spectrum plate to eat from, 
which is what organics kind of provides and what it offers and why it's so special is you're not like feeding bottled nutrients that only contain, you know, 23 different micronutrients or whatever the hell's in it, or, you know, 10% this, 15% that, you know, or five parts that or whatever, you know, like those things, it's like, you don't actually know a, what, what, what to give a plant. And then B it's, it's hard to say that if what you produced was actually the full potential of that plant. But when you work with organics, you can see kind of both of those. You can see, you can say, okay, I don't really know what you're going to need to eat. Like, you know, and I can cater your soil. Like once I, once I understand your genetic and once I understand how you grow and, you know, all these things about this plant, then, then you can, you know, have a, have a, have a little bit more dialed and a little bit more catered, maybe soil mix or, you know, less, a little less, uh, nitrogen amendment or like some, something like that in the soil because it likes to finish out, you know, a little bit more colorful or whatever, you know, there's all these different things that you'll notice once you actually start growing the plant. But so, yeah, so I really find that again, and resin production just is always increasing. It is always, and it's always, it's always better than, than one from salt grown. I, I mean, I, I, I'll say that right now and not to say that the people who are doing work with salts and who are doing that are, are inferior or anything like that. Like they're doing amazing work. And I love that they're making hash, you know, regardless, it really doesn't matter, but you know, one, when you really get down to it and when you really, you know, when, when really it is about the connection and when it really is about the way you feel about nature and when it really is the way you feel about this earth and how you feel about your health and all those things, then there's a different kind of outlook on it. And you're like, okay, yeah, like organics really are, I, I mean, it's the way, yeah, it's the way it was intended and it just, it shines through in, in these plants you know, don't think that anyone, like people, you know, have done amazing work in breeding and whatnot, but that's because they had access to varieties that had been worked on for generation and generation um, from people before them, you know, and a lot of this lineage is, has been preserved for, you know, I mean, we don't even know how long, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, a lot of these varieties, and we are talking about the movement of of cannabis from Southeast Asia to Afghanistan and things like that. Like man, we're talking could be tens of thousands of years old, you know, that, that we've been working with this plant. So, and when, you know, it, it's people's livelihoods that depend on it when it's, when it's, they have to feed their families and they, that's the only way they're going to be able to do it. It was to produce this resin. They had to, you know, really preserve and nurture these these plants and these varieties and make this seed really last. So that's kind of, um, you know, we're we're standing on the shoulders of these giants, and it's uh, it's really like, yeah, it's a special thing, and you know, so so yeah, I hope that answered that. I think so, man. I, I appreciate. <laughs> I think this could be a good opportunity for a second smoke break if your guys are down. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love that. <laughs> All right. Cool. 
I always like to take a moment to thank our community on Patreon and every person that makes it up for allowing us to continue to produce episodes, including episode 33 with Sam and Julian of DabLogic, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Snarf Stash in Colorado, The Hash Hive, our good friend Gendo420, Meltwalkie Jeff, MTS Farms, the good homie Big C, Pressing for Show on the Big Island, Hash and Hedies in SoCal, the good homies from Mission Hill Melts, Jonah, Ryan, and Mario in Illinois, David of Rosin Evolution, Pesci 44 in Connecticut, Nick the Intern, the crew at Heritage Hash Mendocino, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat, my dude the Real Cannabis Chris, and Kevin of Lifted Indina, who IG got gotten, so you can follow him at Lifted Indina 2. That's the number two. I appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So we had some good conversation during our smoke break, and we we're joking around about how we should have probably been recording it. But Sam, you brought up a good point about how the craft of washing hash and looking for these phenols, which we talked about earlier, is so different. Can you dive into some of those differences and talk about some of your processes when washing? Yeah, I mean, we were we were talking about just the evolution of the smell of, um, you know, from granular hash to finished rosin and the smell of the wash water and, and, you know, even the water that's left over from the freeze dryer, the turp water, sort of the evolution of that ex- experience. We were talking about banana OG and how it has a ripe sort of banana peel smell in its granular form. Like the G- you can smell it really dominantly in the GMOB. You can almost smell that balanced with that sort of halitosis chemical GMO smell. And they're sort of really competing for your, your, they, they compete with each other for their presence. And then when that's pressed as fresh press, it comes out in a kind of really muted banana peel smell and you lose a little bit of the gas. And then once the, the fresh press butters out, the gas is prevalent again. And, you know, I, I'm sure this is part of this is responsible and part of this experiences from the evolution of the limonene kind of separating from the THC a, I know Julian is a, is a wizard when it comes to, to these, these separations. And, and that, I mean, that, that brings me back to the original days that, uh, at Dab Logic, when we were doing these high terpene fractions, and you know, it was sort of before its time, really releasing twenty percent terpene HT consistencies, and that and that's an amazing experience getting to to smoke the higher terpene concentrates. I don't know if there's a market for that right now, really, I, I don't, you know, I see a lot of people wanting fresh pressed resin and, you know, when I get a gram of fresh pressed resin, I, I almost like to, to butter it, to really learn its evolution and, and what it's going to arrive at. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a lot like curing really. 
certain strains are, are really interesting as fresh pressed and certain strains are grassy and, you know, need that time to mature. So, you know, sort of having that in mind when, when we're, when we're working with these cultivars and generally preferring resin that that's going to mature and is really stable is, you know, that that's, that's what we're pursuing. So Julian, walk us through the evolution of these solventless hash oils and these different presentations that you've been working on since rosin came on the scene, including like Sam said, these HT or these high terpene SHOs that you guys were putting out. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that evolution was just part of trying to understand all we could about the resin, um, what the resin has to offer, what it's, what it's actually doing when it's in a jar, like sitting there, what it's doing when it's like, why is it clear as fresh pressed? Why is it, you know, milkier when it's butter, you know, all of these questions, how do you get higher terpenes? You know, that that's something that's like, once you have testing on your side, right? Once you can like, and you're required by law to actually send those things out for potency. But, you know, from the beginning of time, we've sent out every test for terpenes as well. And we're one of the only people who've been doing that consistently on every single thing we produce forever. So it's, you know, and we, we do that in hopes that people will enjoy it, but also so that we can understand more about the resin and what it's actually doing. And I mean, a lot of people see these things, right? It's like you take a jar of fresh press and you take it out of the fridge and you let it sit for, you know, a few hours and what starts to happen? It starts to nucleate, you know, that's essentially the beginning of crystallization, right? So you have like a homogenous mixture, then all of a sudden it's starting to crystallize. It turns kind of like milky then all of a sudden it kind of butters out completely into like and that's that's its full crystalline state once it's buttered out that means thca is now in its crystalline state right so thca is all that crystallizes i mean there's like tons of cannabinoids crystallized but i'm just between thc and thca thca crystallizes thc doesn't right so when you have a when you have a fresh press, you're kind of just you just have your basic mixture of terpenes, cannabinoids, different you know lipids and things like that. And lipids, these lipids are coming from a lot of times the trichome head membranes and potentially stalks, depending on how you did your extraction, right? And when you allow that to kind of do its natural process and begin to organize because that's what it's always trying to do. It creates this order out of disorder and then it's, it's so it's going to crystallize. THCA will separate, terpenes will float to the top. That's why when you see like the, you'll see people post up pictures of jars of hash, like the turf layer on the top, right? That's because it's, it's crystallized. The THCA is all crystallized and it is all kind of, separated out or at least a, a percentage you know a good percentage there's still a lot in solution you come to find out and there's still a lot of terpenes in solution and all that you're not getting all of your terpenes out with just letting it sit right but you can see some separation 
And the pure you do that, the pure that material was, the pure that THCA is, the pure your your press was, all of those things, the greater the separation. And also the more homogenous the mixture initially, the more the greater your separation and the purer your crystallization occurs. So for example, if you were to take a fresh pressed hash and you were to press it at 160 degrees, it'll kind of just turn into a drier kind of maybe like a little wet, depending on how the terpene concentration would be more like a drier batter. You know, now when you bring in a rise, those temperatures in there, you know, like uh, most people are probably pressing around like 180 to 220, you know, and like around there, which we don't like to do really. We, we don't, we, we actually press at a lower temperature and not that necessarily a lower temperature is going to instantly provide a higher terpene concentration because that's not true either because as you press at higher temperatures, now you release CO2 from THCA, right? Because THCA, the reason that A, that's, that's its little carboxylic acid group right there, okay? And when it's hotter, the hotter you get it, those start to go through a process of breaking off called decarboxylation. So, and you'll see that, you know, when you look at a, a potency result, you'll see the difference between the THC to the THCA. Not everybody posts that because all that's required is total decarb value. So you can basically take all your THC, act like it was decarbed, and put that value on because that's the max somebody will be able to get. They call it max THC. So that's usually the result you see. So the result you see is actually much lower than the actual potency of the variety. It's just that you're not going to get all that THCA, like let's just say 70%, because it's going to decarboxylate. You're only going to get like you know 60% of it or 65% of it, you know? So that's why that number is lower. Um, but essentially you can you can use and you know you so so yeah you have fresh press you press it at a higher temp now okay you're doing slight decarboxylation you're not really at a temperature where terpenes begin to volatize because terpenes don't start to volatize this is you know it's common myth obviously everything there's evaporation occurring on everything they're very small molecules so yes they'll evaporate if left open that is that is true it'll take a very 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 long time but that is true it's in a closed jar it's only going to fill the container. That's all it can do. Pressure within will be more great than the, the allocation to evaporation. Sorry to jump in, but for example, when you're pressing rosin, then, you know, there's some beliefs that like, for example, doing it between two parchments and trying to preserve those terpenes that way may be the most efficient. Are, are you saying that kind of, in your opinion, it's like, you're going to lose some, but it's just not necessarily worth concerning it because there's nothing you can really do about the ones that you're going to lose anyways. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, for the most part, like to preserve terpenes, you actually just enclose it into a container because even if a, even if a batch is heated, no matter what happens to a batch, if terpenes can't go anywhere, they're going to recondense right back on top of the hash. Like, what, what are, where else are they going to go? You know what I'm saying? They're not just going to, these things aren't just going to 
go nowhere, you know? So it's like, yeah, if it's in a closed jar, if you have these things closed or your, the way to preserve them is to get them as quickly into a container in the smallest possible container that you possibly can as quick as you can. That's how you preserve. And now consistency preserving that is through temperature. So, but that isn't, that, that won't affect terpene concentration really at all. It'll, it'll affect the way how you smell and experience that terpene, but it's not going to really affect as much of the concentration as long, you know, is. So are you talking about temperature when it comes to actually pressing it? Yeah. So for example, let's just, let's just go into this. So like if you press at 180 or 220 degrees, right, the lowest it's like you're looking at like beta karyophyllene, right? So that you're looking at probably around 200, 200 degrees, 250 or 220 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, give or take a little bit is where the vol- volatility where that will actually start to volatize. So it'll actually just start to like rapidly just volatize from the solution. Okay. So that's at about 220 degrees and that's pretty much the lowest one. That's why you have to take a dab. You can't take a dab at 300 degrees. If you try to take a dab at 300 degrees, it doesn't do anything. You're not even going to get smoke. You know, you really need to hit that thing at like 500, you know, to get the whole thing to come through. And that's a lot of times THC doesn't need to be hit at 500, but a lot of these other terpenes that are preserving the THC need to get to that temperature. Otherwise THC won't, won't fully volatize out, you know? So it's, um, you know, and four, you know, between four and, you know, 450 and 550 is probably what, you know, a good dab is at. And it's just, so yeah, think about it like that. And then, you know, think about when you're pressing things or whatever. Okay. So yeah, try to stay below 220 degrees as your max temperature of anything that you'll ever go at. And you should probably just not ever even get close to that, you know? So as long as you're staying under 200 degrees on any given thing, you're doing, you're going to do all right. You know, now as you inch over 150 or 160 degrees, now you're actually starting to begin that process. I was talking about of decarboxylation that actually increases terpene concentration because you're not losing terpenes. Cause again, like I said, they don't volatize until about 210, you know, 220 degrees. So now if you're at 160, you're actually losing CO2. THC is, you know, a is going down. THC is going up. And terpenes are going up because you're losing total volume. So you actually increase terpene concentration in the temperatures of between 160 and essentially 200 degrees. So it's about 180 degrees. So now there, there's a lot of factors here. Don't, you know, it's it, a lot of things at play. So in all different strains and the way they're grown are, are going to affect these temperatures because they're going to have different concentrations of terpene and they're going to have, um, it's just different variables at play, but that you can feel pretty safe for the majority of things right around there, you know? So again, you know, those are part, those are part, right? So if you want to increase terpene, right, you need to take out THC or THCA, you know? So those are methods to essentially increase terpene. Again, one of those is heat, and then the other can be through mechanical separation, right? Because you can pull, we all know, we can just pull out THCA through mechanical separation, that multi-step process, and, you know, with allowing the puck to butter and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if anybody on here has explained that, but it's a pretty simplistic process. And you can pull out THCA, and but, but what's concentrated then in the extracts as you're removing and leaving behind THCA is you're actually increasing terpene. And again, so... 
how to inhibit crystallization, right? Because a lot of people are looking at a pen and they're going, okay, a pen, what do you do with a pen? Like, how do you, you got to cut it or this or that. And it's like, no, that's not the case. Just look at, look at the science of THC because that's really what we're working with here, you know? THC doesn't crystallize. THCA does crystallize, you know? But THCA, in order for it to crystallize, needs to be in a concentration higher than 50% in the solution. So, Right, there's your answer. As long as you have THCA under 50% of your solution, it will never crystallize and you can have a low viscosity hash that'll just stay that way forever. So, I mean, that's, it's easy. This stuff is like super simple, basic organic chemistry. You know, you can study resins, you can study lipids and fats because that's kind of, we're working with a non-polar compound here, cannabinoids and hash and all that. It's non-polar. So it's like, against water right so it's like that's why you can use water as a carrier because it won't mix with water because water is polar you know and there's obviously some caveats to those things with like alcohols and whatnot that's about charge and then that's a little different but but yeah so that's kind of the basics as far as uh just consistencies and and what we've you know we we did a lot of really just super high terpene you know we've done like like 28 percent you know, mechanical separation, you know, on some of these things. And like, they're, it's insane. You know, you probably don't, you know, you have to be really careful at the temperatures at which you smoke that stuff at. And you have to take really small quantities. And it's more of like a, uh, it's more of like just like a holistic kind of healing. You know, you can smell it. It's like really opens your senses and you can really, really, really smell what the strain has to offer that's where you can start to see all the different aspects that that are hiding behind all of this and then you can also increase concentration of other phytocannabinoids that are that are maybe not in as high a concentration too because as you remove carboxyl groups and just start pulling them out now your concentration of your other cannabinoids are going up so we've made actually cbg extracts as high as a one to three ratio of THC to CBG and the CBG, I think was upwards of 20% in that, in that variety. So or in that extract. So, you know, just through simply watching where these things go at different points of pre- uh, at different points and temperatures and after different points of crystallization and after different points of homogenization and things like that, you can, yeah, manipulate it. But again, like Sam said, you know, I don't know if people are necessarily ready for that type of stuff. So it's more just like, we just make a lot, we're just trying to make like the most flavorful, most tasty, you know, high purity, you know, stuff that we possibly can more of just kind of collector hash kind of what we're doing right now. So it's. Yeah. I did find it interesting when Sam said that he felt like, it was kind of ahead of his time and that, you know, currently, I guess you guys aren't producing uh, much or any of, of that uh, versus some of these other forms like the fresh press. So what are, I've learned that skews, I guess is the, is the best way to say this nowadays, but what are the skews that you guys are typically putting out now? Uh, I mean, we, we were doing the fresh press for a while people like it but it doesn't it doesn't hit like like the batters do i mean people yeah the batters fly off you can't i mean i can't 
they they're never sitting around. I can, you can't keep them around longer than a week. I mean, they're they're literally like, yeah, they're they're the best. I mean, the batters, you know, and that's anything from like that cake batter type of consistency all the way into like that kind of that saucier jam batter type stuff. Yeah, that's kind of the ranges we play with. You know, we try to make that wet, that wetter type that you know where the where the the terpenes are just prevalent and they're really strong and you know we 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 over the years we've you know developed methodology for preservation and you know elongation of, of of resin in a jar because i think that's one of the most important things when you have a jar of hash you want to be able to open that two months later and still think it was one of the best things you ever had you know you want to be able to open it two years later and say the same thing you know it's like so that longevity of that resin and those smells and that flavor and that high and all that stuff is like part of what we're after you know because when you're 70 bucks on a gram or 60 bucks on a gram or whatever it is it's like most of these people you know they're conserving it they're 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 conservative with it you know they'll maybe take a point one size dab and they'll and they'll really cherish it and they'll you know they'll they'll bust it out during you know special occasions and you know there's other people also like you know who use this stuff daily obviously but you know i think there's which probably is the the majority of people actually consuming the ash you know but yeah i mean it, it you want it to be able to be something that anyone can look at and appreciate not just necessarily the the highest connoisseurs or whatever you know so again why we develop the pen again why we make these things you know uh why we try to make like the the strongest smelling and most flavorful hashes that we possibly can you know it's just so that we can captivate the senses and also to, to anyone too so it's yeah and that's kind of a big thing because again you know everybody knows we're we're really a small community, you know, hash makers, you know, and, and people who use hash and people who use rosin and people who use solventless products or whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's, it's a pretty small community, you know, it makes up probably about 2%, 1%, 2% of, of the overall cannabis users. So it's like when you're looking at something that small, it's hard to, it's hard to capture it. So again, why going into the pen, realm and why it was so so important for us to create a stable resin that we could put into a pen was so that it could it could reach into that you know 10 percent, 15 percent of cannabis user group right and yeah it might be on the higher it's going to be on the higher end and it's going to cost more than your standard distillate you know flavored vape or whatever the hell you, you know you have or even more probably than your live resin card but that's because there's a lot more work and a lot more effort going into these 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 extracts and these concentrates than there is when when they're made from hydrocarbon extraction or whatever. So, right. And Sam, you've been with Dabologic for about five or six years now. Uh, something like that. I think 2017. I think so. Not quite five. Right. Like, and <laughs> I asked because in reference to what Julian was talking about, you know, I'm curious how you feel that education has grown amongst consumers within this very like niche thing. Like you said, you know, this one or 2% of people that consume solventless on a regular basis, let's call it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, 
the evolution, you know, back then we were even selling glandular, you know, we were selling melt when I first started with Julian. And it's kind of interesting how it's sort of coming back, you know, it's sort of this evolution. Sure. Like mechanical separations were advanced and having a high terpene extract is profound. It's amazing. Like it, it, but you know, what is this medicine to people and, and what, you know, I, I think people who are smoking uh, melt are wanting to connect more with that, that high from the flower. You know, I, I hear a lot of people describe that. So it's interesting just how I feel like there's a place for everything, you know, every form of resin has its place, but currently just doing the wet batters is really for us it's a good middle ground, you know, it's, it's not melt and it's not HT. It's just really solid cured representation of, of these cultivars. So I'm curious since Julian brought up the pins and you brought up coming on when they were still primarily, if not exclusively putting out melt, walk us through the transition of learning the rosin pressing and how that's changed over the last four or five years? You know, I was, uh, back when kind of rosin was first coming on the scene, which is probably like, you know, at least in a big way, it was probably around like 2015, 2016, you know, 2014, maybe, you know, you started seeing a little bit of it around, but yeah, when I when I when I first heard of rosin, rosin was made with a hair straightener. Rosin was, you know, kind of just a a whack type of thing. And when you already had six star, like what 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 the hell did you need rosin for? You know what I'm saying? So it was kind of like that mentality for a while. And uh, you know that that evolved. You know, we I was working with All Greens, started the lab over there with some good people, a guy named Cole and a guy named Sean, both awesome people. Sean still makes hash with uh, Voda extracts in, in Colorado, Voda concentrate, something like that. And yeah, so we started the lab over there. We started processing fresh frozen for them. We did everything. We cut the plants, we processed the fresh, we um, made the hash, we grammed the hash. We, you know, we did the metric, the, you know, we did it all and kind of got them on the ground over there, got them running, you know, we did all, it was kind of like, it was mostly ice soil, just a lot of six star, just like cheese and Kong and, you know, some of these varieties like that. And yeah, all microplanes, all, all cold, you know, uh, cold fridge dried, honestly, it was all just like literally just kind of rudimentary kind of deconstructed fridge ran at like 40 degrees never opened for about two three weeks just so that you know just because the action on a refrigerator with the freezer is the, the action is going to be it's going to pull wet air through and over the condenser and as it goes over the condenser it chills and cools and basically pulls humidity out of the air so you can kind of run you can run a humid uh, uh, a uh, 
hydrometer and you can kind of just see where you're where you're at in there with everything as far as humidity goes temperature stay around 40 degrees and it dries your hash in about three four weeks pretty perfectly and you told me um, the humidity got like really 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 low on these oh yeah humidity would drop down to like two percent you know after like four or five days of being in there you know and then it would just kind of sit in there sit around there you know and really not much fluctuation just as long as the the fridge is working properly. There's not much fluctuation at all. And as long as you're not opening it, because the moment you open it, you're introducing fresh air and now moisture into the environment. So you actually have to be really careful when you're opening these things. And there's a way to bring them up to temp and unplug, you know, there's there's certain methodology to do that, to get it properly done. So yeah, so that was it, you know, microplanes, you know, that whole jam kind of, you know, a lot of the mat rise influence, you know, that type of stuff. And we were we were crushing a lot of hash, um, everything made by hand, you know, similar methodology, just kind of more rudimentary with the with the brute trash cans and the, you know, that kind of stuff. And that evolved in the different mixing barrels and all that kind of stuff over there. And but yeah, so probably about like pretty early on with them, they wanted rosin. Just because again, we were pretty much just selling exclusively melt. And like you could buy it all. You could buy 45 mic, you could buy 70 mic, you could buy 90 mic, you could buy 120, you could buy 160, you could even buy freaking 190 and once in a while, you know what I'm saying? If it came through and it was clean and the rooms were nice or whatever. But so it was like it was nice and you know, did a lot of that work, but they they wanted to start getting into rosin. So yeah, we that's where we started kind of developing the beginning of the rosin was kind of starting there. We learned, you know, how to press the stuff. We were working on like a rosin technologies, kind of like the the same press 710 Labs uses, you know, that kind of press. And those are decent presses. You can press about 10 grams at a time on them. And, you know, they're, they're okay. The control on those is horrible. The, honestly, the, the, really really touchy they you know just yeah not much control on those on those pieces of equipment the thermocouplers not the greatest but anyways it was the first one that came out it was the first model it was the first people to, to do something like this and it was revolutionary you know this is even before the sasquatch came out or anything like that right so it was like this is the first thing you could get your hands on outside of a outside of a hair straightener so we began to develop, you know, mostly it was all just fresh pressed, you know, it was obviously trying to get it as like clean as fresh press as possible, perfect grams of fresh press. That's just what it was, you know, and that's how we did it. And then, you know, split ways with all greens, worked with some other people in the meantime there and did some other things, some awesome people too. On, on those projects and uh but yeah wound up over with you know meeting the people over at verde and wound up you know working with them and trying to give that whole thing a shot and you know right away wanted to press obviously i just you know i knew i saw you know a lot of the, the benefits that it had and things like that as far as like oh because 45 sits 70 mic sits you know all those things so it's like especially when you have like the best 90 and 120 it's just like that's all anybody's really gonna want and we did like a bunch of dry sift and you know then the 99 and all that kind of stuff too we were doing over there but yeah so then i wanted to we got a press it was like really basic kind of more so just like a shop type press with some low temp plates 
that whole jam. And it was one of the first first models of low templates. And they were kind of iffy. The thermocouplers were just kind of weird. And the, the press we were using just like, just it was weird, you know? It didn't really have much functionality. Um, and then, you know, we started talking to guys over at Peer Pressure, the people over at Peer Pressure. And they had initially built a pretty good press. But, it, it, you know, I had tried it in the past and it wasn't really, it didn't really have the, the sensitivity that I needed and all those type of things. But, you know, they were willing to work with us. So, you know, they brought in a press, they let us run it for weeks, let us like write and figure out all these tweaks we wanted on it, all these things we wanted changed, the ability to like drop the arm slower, the ability for, you know, automation, what type of automation, how many cycles, you know, all these different things, you know, that that we started getting kind of down and peer pressure was really just they were willing to pump it all out so they that's what they did and that's what you see in their new newer models you know they're all like automated they all have like super sensitivity they're all like you know they're amazing models and you know it's because we did a lot of a lot of work with them initially uh, you know to, to 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 get those up but yeah also you know so yeah those were great people we still use their presses exclusively we you know we were we were rocking like you know, we have six or seven of their presses total across the, the two states you know so so yeah so you know we we really like the the peer pressure it's really real sensitive you know we're talking single pound per square inch increment movements you know we're talking retractabilities you're talking uh, automation you know you're talking really clean filtered air components you're talking just a high-end system um temperature for you know within a degree or two degrees so it's like very very stable temperatures very very long lasting product to be honest so so yeah, really impressed with that press. Haven't really moved anything since then. And that's kind of how we rock it. We kind of take all the plates, you know, they have these, this fancy kind of like guard on it. And we kind of take all that stuff out to kind of expose the whole plate system. And that's kind of how we like to press that way. It's just more like free and open and a little bigger. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've seen that uh, you guys have a unique folding i think on that parchment it seems like as well maybe in part because you are doing that sam i'm curious uh as you've learned as well for example with pressing the hash what's changed for you i mean when you were doing the high terpene extraction i'm curious on a, a couple of things uh one what micron screens were you using what micron size screens you were you using when you were pressing that and then the other thing is, has the amount of hash that you're pressing at one time changed at all? That actually brings up a great story about the Micron screens. We are indeed a lot of different thicknesses, in fact, of the stainless steel screens and different Microns. And I was doing a press kind of in the early days of, of my pressing um, career, at least on the, on the peer pressure press. And I built up a tremendous amount of pressure on a very thick, small micron. It could have been five or 10 micron screen. And all of a sudden it exploded like a gun. And it shot rosin across the room. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a 250 gram press of 
of some food grade rosin. And it, it was something else from then on. And, you know, immediately what we thought was like, wow, I'm glad no one's face, you know, cause a lot of people's like instinct when someone's pressing rosin is to put their face like right in front of it. You know, that's, that's kind of taboo in the lab. You don't <laughs> kind of want to stand, don't stand over the resin. Don't touch the resin, wear gloves. You know, cleanliness is a huge part of, of the lab life. And, uh, you know, sometimes I come home and I, I make sure that my drinking vessel is probably a little obsessively clean because I get into that mindset of everything has to be perfectly clean. The work bags, the vessels, the paddle, the temperature of the water, you know, that stuff starts to get ingrained in you as, as the practice evolves and you... <laughs> you carry it with you everywhere you go. It, it is a refining to your character. Um, I've watched it with, with all the guys and girls who come through the lab and, you know, they evolve. Whether you're handling the hash and gramming it or filling carts or, or any of these processes, you, you sort of develop an accuracy and proficiency that, that, uh, that you carry, carry around with you. And it's, it's, it's one of the beautiful things of, of working in the lab and being on that side of things. As much as walking through a field of cannabis and selecting strains or working in the greenhouse is rewarding. You know, all of these jobs have their, have their rewards to them. It's a, it's a beautiful industry, really. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well, look, I'm still having fun. If you guys are, I'm down to take another smoke break and then we can hit a few more subjects when we come back. Yeah. That'd be great. All right, cool. Shout out to your solventless apparel company, Six Star Society. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X star society.com. They have all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin, whether you want to do that rocking their fun designs like their new hasher line on their soft, high quality t-shirts, or you need some gear to chill like their super comfy full melt pants, or even if you need to add a little hashiness to your space, they have some really cool designs from collabs with the legend Eric Nugshot. So come join the Six Star Society at sixstarsociety.com and explore all the ways that you can express your love for the resin. You can also follow them on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. And don't forget to use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% on your entire order with Six Star Society. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how you guys met, because I mentioned this briefly earlier, but you kind of met by chance. And I think it was out foraging for a type of mushroom. And Sam, you seem to have the inside track on that. So can you kind of give us the rundown? Yeah, we were mushroom hunting for morels, which I think the first couple of times we looked for them, we didn't find any. And covered a you know a great deal of distance, multiple miles on foot, and we started to kind of look at the soil temperature and the aspens blooming, and sort of really examining the ecosystem around us while smoking amazing hash, of course, <laughs> or rosin as well at that time. It, you know, and just connecting in nature together. Before there was any talk of me coming into the lab, at that time, 
you know, I was doing my own work in a friend's garden, but it just sort of unfolded into this friendship where obviously Julian is, you know, a profound teacher and extremely knowledgeable hash maker. So sometimes you need a set of hands to support you, you know? So I, I became sort of his extra set of hands in the lab. And in that friendship and evolution, we grew and began to develop, um, you know, the, the washing systems and, and continue to refine. And, you know, we built this lab here in Eureka together, you know, designing the system on the phone together, bouncing drawings off of each other, you know, that's really become sort of an everyday thing, you know, because obviously it's, it's growing and, you know, we're producing more flour. So we, we have to constantly be refining everything while simultaneously running, you know, the lab here in, in Eureka. And, you know, our team here in Eureka does their own packaging. You know, we have a very dynamic system to get these skews out the door, as they say, right? So, oh, back to the morel story. <laughs> so we were, we were getting a soil temperature and there was this spot in Rocky Mountain National Park that we had checked a few times with no luck. And then I was out there alone and it was the middle of the night and I saw like one or two morels. And then I kind of shined my light and all of a sudden I saw a huge patch of morels. So many to the point where I sort of, you know, felt bad. It was scary almost. And then called Julian the next day and we went there and each got like a basket full, but not taking all of them at all, you know, which was a, you know, a real treat. And then we actually found a blonde morel close to his house. So it was a sort of like on the trail for something, you know, rare energy that we developed. And then that just carried right into our relationship in the lab and our, and our friendship in the lab. I don't know if you have anything to add, Julian. No, I think you said it great. <laughs> uh, that's kind of where it all began. And in that, you know, we were, you know, always talking about different plant medicines and sharing different plant medicines and kind of sharing hash from, you know, from one another and kind of just, just really trying to connect on, on a deeper level. Cause you know, a lot of times you're hanging out with people or you meet somebody, it's, it's kind of hard and you don't really, it's kind of hard to really connect with somebody and really get to know someone and really, you know, feel them out and, you know, and, and it's, it's a whole nother world when you're, yeah, you, there may be potential that you're trying to bring this person into something, but yeah, you have, there's, there is, has to be a lot of trust and there has to be a lot of, you know, love and there has to be a lot of care and this understanding that one another is going to just hold that, you know, hold that true. Cause that's, that's, that's so important. Right. When, when I'm looking into it, it's like, thinking about it now which I didn't even really never really thought of it like that but it's like you know when you're I'm in Colorado he's in California you know and then 
still the ability to 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 connect and and share experiences and hardships and things like that so we can so we can teach one another and 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 learn from one another and that's 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 hash and that's cannabis and that's you know meditation that's herbs and it's all sorts of stuff you know but it's yeah so that's and do you feel like this friendship and this connection that you guys have has also like translated into the brand you know some of the visuals uh on some of the branding and i don't remember i think one of your posts had a, a few of the kind of the values and one of them was this kind of shamanic energy so does that influence the work that you're doing in cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, shamanic energy, you know, basically means listening to nature. It means like opening your eyes and like humbling yourself. And, and yeah, that's, that's like a, that's something that's hard, you know, you can't really teach it to everybody, you know, so it's, when you when you find you know people who can carry that and who can witness that and understand that you know that that goes goes a long way and that's like how you form right like a deep connection that's like that's how you give like transmission to someone right like it's it's yeah it's through stuff like that so Yet you told me in our last conversation, because Sam had the same sentiment last time where he was like, I see Julian as almost more of a mentor. And you're like, well, I always try to kind of still have the attitude of being a student all the time, just in general in life. And so that seems like it kind of led to you both growing together, even though you were the one who seems to have had more hash making knowledge once you met. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, you have to, you have to always be learning. You have to always be the student and always open your heart. And yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't move forward at all until you, until you do that, you know? So I think that's, you know, that's just, yeah. Let's Sam maybe talk a little bit about that too. I mean, just the gratitude, you know, I think that the the relationship with this plant creates gratitude. So it's like natural to to find that frequency with our interactions with, you know, how we deal with other archetypes of people and how, you know, just the movement of producing, a, 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 you know, a consumable cannabis product is a is a bit of a spiritual movement still <laughs> and and always will be i hope you know so that, that's you know that that's that's just profound and i look forward to many more years of continuing down these these seeds and the relationship with nature that that this plant naturally has you know or inherently has we can say and then, and then you know the subtleties and and everything from season to season here in northern california uh, you know expanding into working with farmers 
in different terroirs and, and really looking at and showcasing the resin from, from these hills in Northern California, it, it's going to be from season to season. It's so slow, you know, it, so it's going to be many more years of, of showcasing and just look forward to every time Julian visits or if I go to Denver, there's this explosion of insight and communication. We have a lot of colleagues at the lab, Jacob and Matt and all these amazing Ollie and amazing minds, you know, that are accelerating our growth with things like, you know, IPM and bug identification. Hannah's working with that. And just, you know, there's so much exciting stuff in the lab constantly. We're looking at the frozen flower under the microscope and examining the quality of the resin before and after the freeze-dry process. And it's a really fulfilling work. Yeah, I could definitely see that, man. Let's switch topics a little bit. Let's talk about mixed batches. This is something that seems to be something that you're doing quite a lot recently, at least in Colorado. But it's interesting to go through your feed and there's this kind of back and forth between we really like single cultivar expressions. We feel like that's kind of, I don't know if truer is the right word or or sentiment, but we also love doing these mixed batch. And going back to what we talked about earlier with terpenes and depth and being able to combine profiles, what have you learned throughout that process? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, you know, and part of that like single cultivar idea is really like seeing the true expression of a plant. Like if you can, if you can begin to learn the expression of these plants and like identify these plants, like now you'll begin to see something like there's a language under all that. Right. So it's like, if you grow, you know, and it's, maybe a lot of people are interested in this, but, you know, I've grown Colombian and Cambodian and Afghani and Paki and, you know, grown Indian and different varieties from all, you know, all around, you know, Thai, Lao, just like a lot of these, these amazing varieties. And you can actually begin to see where the flavors come from, where these things actually originate, where, what you're actually smoking, right? So like when you, then you smoke the Bubba Kush and you can taste the NL Hindu or you can, you know, like there's all these, you just begin to see a deeper relationship, right? And it's like, and then what was, what was that? You know, what was the NL? You know, you got to experience that, that, that Hawaiian, you know, the Hawaiian Afghan, you know, and you can kind of piece that together and say, oh, well, the diesel, you know, has the Hawaiian. You can kind of see their match, right? You can kind of see that point in there in which they align. So it's important to know, understand, and and use single cultivars, you know, if you're, if, if you're a connoisseur and if you're, if you're trying to preserve and experience this plant in all of its facets, you know, that those are very important things I, I feel personally, but, uh, but yeah, so then, 
then from there, it's like, okay, if you understand these cultivars now, now you can begin to maybe play with them a little bit. And for us, it's, it's kind of a rewarding thing because we make these combinations or we do these things that sound good, or that seem like they'd, they'd, they'd look good based on their terpene profiles and the combinations of effects and things like that that they would produce. And, and then you go, oh, well, now, you know, the potential to breed this or to, to find phenotypes in big pools, you know, in, in, in a big pool of, 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 of seed, you know, with these genetics in it now is like a, a major reality too so it's like we can actually see maybe beforehand what a, a blend of these flavors would would taste like and now you can see also okay well what would this what would the effect be and like all of those things so the mixed batches i think are are very interesting but it's more for people who are looking for like complexity who are looking for like kind of just something unique and different who don't aren't really satisfied maybe with 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 smoking the same strain every day or whatever you know and i know a lot of people like that but you know personally like i'm fine with the same strain you know i can do the same strain for probably about six months to a year you know and then i will switch it up you know and that doesn't mean that i'm not trying a thousand other varieties throughout that year it just means that my main smoke and what i what i have and what i consume is that one variety um and then i really get to learn that variety i really get to understand that variety and yeah it, it, it kind of transforms you you really have to spend time with it because it's it's working on you that plant that energy that plant spirit it's, it's doing work on you and yeah until you maybe can become conscious of that work then maybe you should keep trying to to use that one you know and that's only if you feel that call to it but and this isn't directly linked to that but in some way i feel like it is you also brought up when we spoke last time that you feel like two years is a marker for a variety that's gonna stick around i think you mentioned maybe like a gorilla glue even if at some point they might fade out of popularity, they're always going to kind of be held, you know, in some way, especially now that people are able to hold stuff and, and make seed stock from it and stuff. So my point is, do you feel like what you're talking about, this kind of working uh, on you is something that also happens in the market in a different way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, that's kind of how that works, right? Like somebody has to buy a pack of seeds, a breeder breeds something, somebody buys a pack of seeds, or maybe the breeder, you know, hunts them themselves or herself or whatever it may be. Right. And somebody finds something interesting out of that, out of that, of that cross. Now that person has to take that variety, hope they had a cut, you know? Okay. If they did, if they didn't, they revert it. That takes, you know, months you know and then by then they they have to grow out a mother on that it takes another months and months and months now they have to get cuts off of it chances are they're going to want to run most of those cuts so they'll run them you know they'll give out maybe two or three those people have to mom them out those people have to run them then they have to make cuts and do the same thing and once yeah maybe 
15 to 35, you know, <laughs> people get a hold of this stuff, you know, 10 to 20 people get a hold of this stuff. It's like, yeah, then it starts to to show itself. And especially if those, if the people who, who, who got a hold of it and who enjoy it and who are really liking it are people who are known to be, you know, people in the know, right? So it's like, once that kind of spreads and once that gets into, you know, more of a general public's hands, that's probably been about two, two to four years, to be honest, is typically how long something like that will take. So, you know, how long ago did, did cult classics breed the cement shoes? I mean, that was years ago, you know, 710 Fino hunted it. They started working it. They started running it. Now that now that's one of the best sound, you know, that now he has to go back and remake the cement shoes because it's what everybody wants because finally it's it's it showed itself and proved itself somewhere. So it's like and people enough people got to smoke it, enough people got to try it, enough people got to experience it. And we're like, oh, this is cool, this is unique. Same thing happened with the Mac. You know, Cap did it, you know, he bred that. And then he passed that out and he passed it, he passed it to as many people as he possibly could. And once that got out to enough people, you know, all of a sudden, boom, there was the math craze. You know what I'm saying? It didn't last super long, but it, it kind of, but, but that's because it didn't wash. You know what I'm saying? If that would have washed, the Mac one would have been a washer. That shit would have blown, it would have blown up and you'd still be seeing it might even, it might even have topped cookies. You know what I'm saying? Just because it had that potential because he lined it up right. Calculator run lined that up properly. And he still, you know, lines up the freaking street around the block, $200 a pack type of stuff. So it's still freaking banging. But he has to go back again. I'll remake the Mac. You got the Mac B2, all this shit. You know, it's like, it's kind of how it's been. So, and that's kind of just how it is. So, you know, any Sherbert, any Rainbow Belts, any Gelato, any cookie any any of that stuff it's got to prove itself and you know a lot of those yeah enough people are going to grow them and enough people are going to try them that it's not really going to matter and they're just going to keep pumping out new ones now you got cheetah piss and now you got gary pate and now you got runs and now you got white runs and now you got berry paint and now you get you know it just keeps it keeps just floating down the line so it's just and that's they have to do that. You can't just be like JJ from Top Dog Seeds. You know, you got you got Trace Dog is basically what you did. You cross that to whatever you want, and, it, and it's and it's gold. You know what I'm saying? Because you spend time, you did the work, you built the Trace Dog, the Triple Chem DBX. You know, you did it right. You know, you picked the right male. You picked the Neville. You know, you picked the original Neville. You know, Afghan one, not the freaking Hindu Kush like Red Dog. Or you did it. You just did it right. You know what I'm saying? So it was like. You know, you, you first, yeah, you have to do it right. Then you have to let it out, and then yeah, you're probably gonna be scrambling to remake it because you're not gonna know which one it really is. So, so let's talk about a plant that you guys called a teacher plant, in that it's showing you what potential lies in a genetic line, and it's something that we've talked about a little bit in the podcast already, which is the hazelnut cream which like you mentioned earlier, you were mentioning some breeders that you know, are obviously known for producing some hash producing varieties like exotic genetics. And you said that there were a lot of stuff in there that 
was I think kind of cookies influence, obviously with like the cookies and cream and stuff. But funny enough, you guys found something in this hazelnut cream that you love. And I would love for you guys to tell us a little bit more about it, including the lines that you've been working. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So first of all, yeah, the hazelnut cream, extremely special, extremely unique. I mean, to, to kind of talk about it and to kind of really understand this strain and why it's special, you kind of got to just break it down in its lineage. You know, you look at the Miami haze, who knows what it really is. You know, you could, you could claim whatever you want. You could say it's a black haze. You could say it's the, you know, it's something like that, you know, but when I've seen it, it, it was never overly pissy. It had some terpenoline uh, like, jackie type taste to it but in that you know maybe you could just consider it something like a neville's haze or something because it was kind of like a little that floral kind of esque in it and neville's haze is just you know when you look at what that is right that's a haze cross to c haze right and if people don't, you know, a haze is that Colombian piss kind of that like sharp body odor type, you know, carrots, you know, the pith, the that that's a haze, right? And sea haze is more like the cough, the the floral um, kind of variety type, you know, not really Jackie, but still has some of those light notes of that kind of Jack type stuff. Um, and when you look at that a variety like that and the only reason i'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm even claiming that it could be that right is because you know we are doing a lot of breeding work with with this cookies and cream across miami's miami haze line and it's predominantly when it's crossed to something it's predominantly high terpenoline terpenes right just in, in any F1 with, with this variety, it's high terpenoline. And the funny thing to note about it is most of the phenotypes from the cross were very high terpenoline. And they didn't wash. You know, high terpenoline doesn't wash. But hazelnut cream isn't, the, the pheno that we selected is not high terpenoline. It really doesn't have much or any terpenoline. It's like very, very, very low terpenoline. And it has more of that like cat piss more of that Colombian, it's like the Mac on steroids as far as flavor is concerned, you know? It's like even the like cheesy, like that funky, that like, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing, you know? And then on top of that, it gives you a really nice high in effect and it lasts a very long time. The bud is extremely potent, you know? And, you know, it hits and checks a lot of, a lot of marks. But then when you try to breed with it, you know, you see okay, majority of what's what's produced with this strain is high terpenoline type varieties because that's obviously the dominant trait. So, you know, we've worked F2s, F3s, F2BX. We've gotten BX, Just to F2. give some clarity to people that, like, don't necessarily know that much about genetics, the, okay. F, the F1 line, if I understand correctly, is basically just these beans that you've, popped right and you found your keeper right, within the yeah yeah it would depend so so an f1 line 
are two separate lineages crossed together. So that would be an F1 line. So yes, like the Miami Hayes cross the cookies and cream is an F1. Now, if you, that made the hazelnut cream, that hazelnut cream was an F1 generation on that original phenopop. Now, when I took the hazelnut cream and crossed it to back to another hazelnut cream, that was an F2. So that means you take a male of hazelnut cream and you cross it to our selected female of hazelnut cream that made the F2. Now, in some people's minds, you could say you could you could call that a lot of things, right? You could call that a Miami Haze BX. You could call that a cookies and cream BX. But or you could call it a hazelnut cream F2, you know, that's the, so there's some complexities to that because truly you are crossing backwards into my, you know, Miami Haze. Now that, since it has the, the hybrid crossed into it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really call it that. So you'd just call it the F2 line. But if it were, if it were more pure, then you'd start calling it the BX. So if you took like an F2 male and crossed it back to the F1 original pheno that we selected that would be a bx or you could call that an inbred line an ibl that begins to start to form an ibl so we've taken it into an f2 selected a male out of the f2 so that because we wanted to, the male that we wanted to select for the bx we wanted to have some of the genes we want it was going to have 50 percent of the genes of the one we selected right so then when we crossed it in to make the bx now we were going to have 75 percent of those you know and just so on and so forth so we've got now when you take two bx's and cross them together that's that's now another f2 but you could call that a, an f2 bx or you know you could even you could call that just continue to call that an inbred line so and right it's, now it's really, the main two things that you have though is the F2 that you selected, and then obviously that F1 that you had found. And I thought one of the things that was interesting was that the F2, from what I read, seems to bring more of that haze lineage into it, at least mm -hmm. uh, terpene notes-wise, but not necessarily terpene effect-wise. So is that something kind of unique that you've seen? Yeah, so it produces like a more bright, like ginger kind of esque type terpene, the hazelnut cream in the traditional cuts that so leans more towards that like brighter, hazier type terp. Um, and really the F2 was just meant as an intermediary, like like it's really just part of the work to make the BX and then you know, so on and so forth. The BX is only part of the work to, to make the IBL. It's just like, right. So really the idea isn't, isn't necessarily to, it is to explore and see what hazelnut cream has to offer a hundred percent, but it's also to preserve hazelnut cream in seed form as a fixed line, you know, because when you pop a pack of hazelnut cream, your chances of you finding that are like literally like, one in a hundred, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it is a rarer phenotype and finding that recessive trait, you know, I've given this ash, I've given, I've given this ash to Mike himself and 
you know, he's blown away. He literally said, this is not how I thought this was going to turn out, you know, because when you smell the cookies and cream and you smell the, the, the Miami A's, they're, it's not as funky in any way, shape or form. So, you know, it really came out with that A haze, you know, that, that, that original A, like that piff type, but with a little bit more funk and cheese underneath that was just like super strong. So. Yeah, that sounds super cool, man. I'm actually pretty excited to try it when I get a chance. I also saw, funny enough, that like you won an award with it not too long ago, but more interestingly was that you just picked it up off the shelf at one of the local dispensaries before entering. It wasn't like something that you guys planned out or a special run or anything like that. Yeah, and we we never do. Like I've we've every award we've ever won, we've never made a bad for that for that award we never like said oh yeah this we're gonna do something different here and and we're gonna use this type of bud or anything like that it's literally always been 100 percent of the time has always been off the shelf so we go pick up hash straight up from the dispo and we, a lot of times i'm so busy i'm running i'm literally running day out i'm literally going to the dispensary and saying what do i what do you guys have here and just literally picking the best shit that I see on the shelves and going and entering that. And that's, that's, you know, we've won many awards, you know. I think that's cool that you guys just pick it up off the shelf because it just means that whoever's buying the hash is getting the same hash that you're entering into these competitions and then, and then winning, you know. And on that note, like, I'm curious what those mean to you on a personal level and as a company? Yeah. So, I mean, awards are great and all. I mean, it's nice to, to win an award and to have recognition. It's, it's more just really uh, nice for the team, really nice, you know, for everybody to like get together and, and just appreciate one another and appreciate all the things that, you know, we have and the things that we're given and the, being able to work with one another yeah it's 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 really a lot of appreciation and but it, it doesn't it doesn't change anything or you know like on on any sort of level that's you know to be honest it's like a lot of the competitions are it, it's hard to say right like what what's who had the best if all you entered was a gram or two grams or whatever it was, you know, it really is. And, but, but it's nice when something shines through in when there's, you know, 15 to 20 different people entering a competition and all your peers and a lot of the people you've trained and things like that throughout your life start showing up in these competitions. Like it's amazing. You know, I love it. I, I really do. It's, it's wonderful to see, you know, old colleagues like Michael and Blair and Sean and, you know, seeing just everyone, you know, Tim and Jonathan and just great people out there that are just still doing great work and holding true to these techniques and holding true to these methodologies and, and, uh, and I think it really, yeah, it's a really beautiful thing. Cool. Last question on the hazelnut cream. And it kind of is a segue into my next question is you see it 
referred to as like a 70-30 indica sativa type effect. And I've always been curious how people quantify that before I feel like it was more like this kind of experiential thing. But now with the testing, does that come into it? Or how do you determine what that is? Because the next question is, I know Verde has this system where they have multiple kind of, I don't know what they are, like called states or moods or something that these different profiles provide. So me, I'm, I'm more just in a believer of uh, set and setting. So based on, you know, the cannabis and THC being kind of a psychedelic herb, it really does depend on your mindset in the setting that you're in. And that will kind of cause a change in perception and overall effect. Now, when you start to begin to become comfortable with cannabis and you're using cannabis daily and you're in like similar situations where you have similar mind states and similar, you know, settings and things like that. Yeah, there, there are small, minute changes that occur based on, based on the overall type of cannabis that you're using. So if you, if you're using a high myrcene strain, high linalool strain, chances are those varieties are going to be more slightly on the sedative end of things, what people would call indica. And the only reason we say indicas and sativa at all, because I really don't, I don't like that because Get that that's more origin based, like cannabis indica, and you know, it's from India. It's just there's there's a lot of nomenclature errors that just occur because of that type of stuff. You know, most of the drug variety they consider cannabis sativa. You know, that kind of whatever. But it's, I mean, that's the name of the plant. So it's um, regardless. Yeah, if you smoke a high pinene or dab a high pinene limonene dominant variety, then yeah, there's going to be some clarity. There's going to be some cerebral blood flow activity. You know, you're 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 going to feel a little flushed effect. You're going to feel you're not going to feel really tired. You might feel a little more alert, a little more conscious. You know, type effect, and that's what people would traditionally just call sativa, right? Or what in the past people had called sativa. And I, I, again, I don't like it. And the reason we do it is because when a dispensary is calls us up and they're like, what do you have for sativa? What do you have for indica? That's how they ask for these things. They don't ask for it. Like, Oh, do you right. have hazelnut cream in stock right now? Oh, do you have Kemi Jones in stock? Like some of them, some of the really good ones do that, but rarely, you know, most of these people, these are like, oh, I don't even know. You know, these are just people who don't really consume a lot of cannabis and yeah, they're just looking for indica or sativa and they want to place orders. And a lot of these places will place big orders, you know, because they have high volume of traffic because they have 15 dispensaries across the state or whatever, but they're literally ordering by indica and sativa. So we tend to try to at least 
somewhat put them into a category. The other funny thing is, is metric actually actually requires you to classify it as either indica sativa or hybrid. So there's actually a drop down bar. It says, you know, type and you just, you literally can click indica sativa hybrid. That's all. So it's, so it's like, and that's why these people are asking for this is because they just took a metric course and they got sent out onto the street to go order this stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of crazy. So it's, yeah, we have to still kind of use that language and that terminology. If you were to say, in my opinion, there's narrow, narrow leaf drug variety, there's broad leaf drug variety, there's, you know, narrow leaf fiber varieties, narrow leaf seed producing varieties, you know, and same with broadleaf on all those. So it's, that's really classification if you're looking at it from a botanical sense and not necessarily just saying, oh, indica or sativa, because that's not, that's not really botanically correct anymore at this point. So, and there's a good book out there, Cannabis Ethnobotany uh, by Robert Connell Clark. And he goes through a lot of this stuff and really fine, fine comb, just really good detail and just, and lays it all out. And that's, you know, there's a map of where these varieties come from and which specific region regions they come from. Typically the more narrow leaf regions are more equatorial, narrow leaf varieties are more equatorial, more, um, you know, Southeast Asia, that type of climate, you know, Colombia has some of them, you know more equatorial though and then you have these and you have highland narrow leaf too i'm not yeah because you have you have the himalayan and you have the 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 andes you know and those are both uh narrow leaf varieties but um yeah you mentioned him last time actually i've spoken to him he's a really nice guy and uh, has a lot of cool stuff from the indian land race collective and i learned quite a bit from him uh, that there's just such a, a variety, even within just, you know, not too big of a geographical area. And it has so much to do as to kind of where these varieties are located. And like you said, there's, there's so many kind of intricacies to like the domestication of cannabis. And it, it, it is pretty fascinating, actually, to see to see that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's super fascinating. I mean, that could, you could do a whole podcast on the history of hash and how these varieties got from where they came from, you know, like the origin of hashish, you know, we know these things. It's like places like India and Nepal and, uh, you know, more of these Himalaya Himalayan, you know, high mountain. That was the whole thing is, it wasn't like your average person doing this stuff, you know, this, these were like people going into very remote areas with very little, very crude technologies and very crude forms of transportation and, and accessing these plants and preserving the seed from these plants, you know? So this is, this is kind of an ancient practice and, you know, it made its way down, you know, into Afghanistan eventually. And, you know, you had dry seed and all of that stuff come into, come into play and 
dry seedings, like the dusty, you know, and that the Nepalese stuff used to, it was, that was like the charis, right? So it was like hand rubbed. They were rubbing the bud just up there. That's, it was so crude, you know, they didn't even have silk screens and all this fine stuff that eventually they had as those things became more common once it made its way into Afghanistan. So, Right. Well, I appreciate you guys hanging out with me. I know we've been hanging out for quite a while and I feel like we've talked about a lot of interesting and cool things, but I'm just going to go down and ask a variety of questions to wrap it up. Uh, Sam, you mentioned studying abroad in England and smoking a lot of was it soap hash or I think this is what you referenced it as? What, what does that mean? Yeah. In Europe during that time, you know, I, I got to go to Amsterdam and try some of the different imported hashes, hashish, Nepalese temple ball. I believe that year was the year that Helter Skelter won the cannabis cup. But occasionally back in England, if I was buying weed, or rather, um, like as they call it, skunk, or if I was buying hashish locally, most of the time it was soap bar hash. And that's like a term for sort of a crude hashish that's generally smuggled probably from Spain or Portugal into Great Britain. And um, it was always readily available. And it, it really isn't the cleanest stuff. There's lots of like stories about it in it it's lack of purity. But again, you know, when you're in the times, you're, you're, you're sort of subject to that. I think that's one of the unfortunate parts of cannabis is that we're subject to the evolution of it and to the evolution of companies, you know, with distillate carts. I mean, I, I don't think a distillate cart is all that different from soap, soap bar, hash, hashish. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Since you brought up Amsterdam, you told me what I thought was kind of a funny story that your dad was open to going with you or taking you and going in and buying genetics that you couldn't purchase at the time. And you also reminded me to remind you to tell us a story about him smoking because he didn't really. Oh, gosh, that's a good one. So we had gotten the K2, which I think was the first 20% strain. And it was, I mean, it was just completely frosted and probably hydroponically grown, I would imagine, at that time. And I, I rolled it into a spliff and put hashish. It was actually isolator hash in that as well. And we proceeded to smoke it. And he took two hits, I believe, and was fine. But it was getting late and we were on the main Damkring Square and we needed to take a tram to Central Station to then walk to our hotel. So we started to race to get aboard this little pedestrian tram. And I remember looking at him and he wasn't holding the bar per se. He was kind of wrapped around it, almost hugging it. And then he collapsed. Okay. <laughs> And I am having this experience where I think he's dying and I'm having, you know, like I'm thinking this is it. My whole experience and life with him is flashing before my eyes. And he is having this out of body experience from the cannabis and he comes to, to be. And um, we immediately 
realize that it's, you know, not a very good situation to be in. The conductor is standing, standing above us at that point. So we rerun again. And uh, I remember throwing this, the rest of the spliff out into the canal, kind of in a, in a, in a, in a bit of a paranoid uh, <laughs> notion. But the next day, we definitely, I definitely went to Barney's and, you know, got some sweet tooth number four and, you know, just, it's so funny how long it's taken us to get to that dispensary era and how, you know, when you're traveling, it's hard to meet and connect with people and, and find the cannabis community. So, you know, there is something cool about Amsterdam having had that for a while. And then now, you know, all these States are, are booming and, uh, and it's, it takes some of the stress off of it too. You know, I know a lot of people are always in search of it and, and that's a stressful thing. You know, it's nice to be able to provide some consistency for people and predictability. Yeah. Which is actually part of the reason Julian, you told me was that you moved to Colorado, like that day before your 18th birthday was that particular fact. It was absolutely a, Absolutely a driving force, you know, and really what caused me to pursue hash and what caused me to to try to take this thing a little bigger than just like home grow status and whatnot is because you couldn't go and buy really that good a hash out on the market. You couldn't hit up your friend and buy some six star hash. You couldn't do any of that, you know, there that really didn't exist. Like you know, you either had to make it yourself or, or you didn't, you didn't really get it. So it was, it was, yeah, it was a pursuit of that. And then eventually, yeah, leading into saying, why don't we give people the best hash? Like, why don't, why don't I try to see how many people we could give the best hash to? Because the more people that can experience this, the more people that can try it, the more people are going to want to grow this plant, you know, and that's, that's what it's all about. Right. So yeah, yeah, and you mentioned to me even you feel like a home grower with the right genetics, even with a small plant count, let's say four or six, uh, again, with the right genetics and obviously the right cultivation practices and stuff can provide plenty for themselves with that alone. Yeah, if you think about it and you have a perpetual setup or let's just say you even just produce once a season outdoor. I mean, with your six plants or your 12 plants with you and your partner, you and your roommate or whoever it is. Yeah, you can absolutely produce, produce enough. And even if it were in, even if it were in your spare bedroom, you'd be able to produce enough. Even if it were in a a closet of your room, you you know, I've, I've had friends who, you know, their bedroom right next to their bed is their, is their grow tent, you know, and they're, and they're growing. It's like those, those are, those are the things that kept this plant alive. Those are the things that pushed this plant forward. Those are the very reasons that we are here today. That's the very reason legalization or, or any of these things are even occurring, you know, is because of the very people who, you know, despite what was the status quo, despite what everybody told them, you know, they were, they believed that this plant was was sacred and they believed this plant had a right to exist here right so it's yeah and and yeah and i think everyone especially with modern modern varieties and the way genetics are today if you do the right selection from the right breeders i mean yeah you can you can find a variety that's at least decent for you to produce hash and 
and from there, you know, you had asked about master plans and these teacher plans and things like that. Like, that's what that means. You know, you find your first 2% washer and you go, oh my gosh, you know, I have something in the bottom of these bags or I have something in the bottom, I have something here, right? And then, you know, you learn a little more. This plan's teaching you, why is it giving you 2%? Why is it, how do you get it to do more? How do you get it to produce two and a half? How do you maybe get it produce three, you know? And then... Same thing. Now all of a sudden you get your hands on a three and a half percent or whatever. And now how do you get it to produce four, four and a half, you know, all of these things that that's, it's teaching you, it's showing you, it's incremental, it's day by day and it's moment by moment. You know, you're literally living in that practice of, of, of every moment, you know, and that's why, that's why it is a lifestyle. That's why, you know, when you really, if you take this on, you know, it, it, it will, it will become your life because it's, it's here to, it's here to teach you and really at the end, it's here to teach you how to caretake for this planet, how to properly provide for, for, for mother nature, you know, how to not take too much, how to, how to just be symbiotic here. That's what it's showing. It's, you know, so. Yeah. All good points, man. Lots of good points. Again, uh, I also don't feel like we do the interview justice if we didn't talk a little bit about your grandfather and his influence and how you got to hash making as well. Yeah, no, shout out to Grandpa Dean. Yeah, he's a big influence in you know cannabis and why I started making hash. And um, along with my aunt and uncle, you know, they they were super influential. And kind of the story goes, I was 15 and I was helping clean out my grandpa's attic. And I, you know, started, I was going through his stuff and helping him haul it down and all these, all these things. We're pulling out huge grow lights and magnetic ballasts, you know, like, like gymnasium style lighting, like super loud type stuff. <laughs> I later come to find out, you know, but. Um, you know, and crazy huge timers with fuse boxes attached to them. And, you know, we don't, nowadays you just kind of buy the setup. You have a little controller and you plug it in your 220 outlet and it just works, you know, but back then it was like so much more complicated and you had to know so much more and it was, it seemed crazy. And I didn't really know what this stuff was, you know, and he had like, you know, some, science equipment he had like an old roto vap or you know he had he had an old like glassware and condensing columns and you know he had an old uh, like a huge vacuum pump like this thing looked like a dinosaur and it was just like yeah i i didn't know anything and i so i started asking him i saw this little sift box over there as well and that's the only thing I kind of knew what it was. I was like, oh, shit, cool. There's a sit box over here. So he saw me later on after we cleared all that stuff out of his attic. And we, like, kind of organized it out in his driveway. And I think he was having, like, a friend to come pick it all up to finally just get rid of it all once and for all. And, and yeah, and I saw this little sift box. And I went over to it. And I was kind of messing around, playing with it. And he says to me, he's like, you know, that's not for tobacco. 
And I was kind of, I mean, I was like in my head, like, yeah, no shit. But I'm kind of thinking like, oh, he's trying to tell me, like, he's trying to give me a little head, head nod, you know, without saying it. Right, so, right. You know, and he gave it to me and he's like, yep, I don't ever want to see you, you know, put tobacco in this or whatever. Just kind of, again, a little another joke. And yeah, so then, you know, that was kind of like my first, you know, introduction into hash making. And then, you know, a year later, you know, he kind of, I asked him about a lot of that stuff. Like, what was all this? Blah, blah, blah. I had already gotten caught. I got raided later that year. Actually, I was growing in my, at my house and, uh, someone who I thought was a friend, uh, got busted, like selling ecstasy and they ratted me out and the whole SWAT team and everything, the whole nine, they come tear the house apart, ripping out everything, ripping apart everything charging me with uh, manufacturing THC, intent to distribute, you know, the whole shebang, possession of drug paraphernalia. So yeah, the, you know, it was the, it was the whole, the whole shebang. And then, you know, and I was young, I'm 15. So I'm kind of just like, fuck, you know, I'm like screwed here. My mom's a social, social worker. So she's like basically telling me like, yeah, you're, you're going to the system now. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what happened. I, you know, got in the system, never, you know, stopped consuming cannabis and, you know, continue to get in trouble kind of because of that through all the UAs, the urine analysis that they all have to, they make you go through and all that type of stuff. And, and yeah, eventually I made a, a bargain when I turned 17 that I was going to move to Colorado kind of to get away from all of this is what I had said to them. So I could go, you know, go to school there and do all this stuff. I was just going to finish, you know, finish high school in here in Wisconsin and then leave. And they, they took it. I had a good attorney and they, they said, all right, yeah, if you leave here, you just owe, you know, $8,000 worth of fines. And basically we're going to, we're going to, we'll give you a slap. I think they gave me like possession, you know, a couple possession charges and like, you know, and one of the things that I got in trouble with over those years also got brought up, but like basically all got kind of wrapped together and I got to leave. And that's how I actually made my way out to Colorado initially. And then I started school in the mountains, Colorado Mountain College, and kind of just went from there. But yeah, so yeah, Grandpa Dean, he kind of showed me, you know, my first hash. He kind of told me about extraction he told me about processes you know this process he was using called reverse isomerization where he was taking like shitty weed and somehow making it into good stuff i you know through chemicals and some kind of synthesis process i'm not really certain of but he also you know he made tons of hash oil he made tons of hash he was actually busted in the 80s as well for hash oil gallons of hash oil that he had produced um at that same very house so and then my aunt and uncle, so his, you know, his daughter also are the ones who introduced me to like my first, you know, large scale cannabis grow, you know, when I was same age, shortly after I had gotten in trouble, you know, they found out, oh, obviously Julian likes cannabis, Julian, you know, likes to, <laughs> right. so um, they called me up one afternoon, maybe about a year, you know, like, yeah, about nine months later and they were like, hey, um, you know, we need, we, we need some help up North and they didn't really tell me what or anything like that. And I show up at their, they have like, you know, a cabin and there's like a little barn on the, on the property and stuff. And I show up and they're kind of over in the barn and, you know, I see like a couple of cars and 
nobody's like coming out to greet me and they're like they like i call and they're like oh we're in the barn i'm like oh shit okay so i like walk over to the barn and the things just you know stacked head to toe you know with the biggest plants i had ever seen at that time you know i had never seen obviously any norcal stuff or whatever but you know we're talking like eight nine ten foot tall plants full sun kind of random genetics you know like the white widows and the white rhinos and the kind of just haze and just kind of standard names and and whatnot from the back of a high times magazine but you know at the time it was like the only the first stuff i'd ever seen on that scale and i was just blown away and uh and yeah, they, you know, I, I, I helped them trim all of it, you know, or a lot of it, you know, went through that up there for like a week and they sent me home with a bunch of weed and a bunch of like trim. And I, you know, I got home and I was like, okay, I have my first like batch of like real large batch of trim, not just like little shit I'm buying from, right. you know, friends and stuff like, no, like real, real large batch. And I got, you know, to make, some of my first, you know, uh, like large sift, you know, sifting, you know, it wasn't that pure or anything, but kind of more just made it into like pressed, pressed type sift hash, kind of like keef hash made, you know, experimented with everything under the sun, like literally did like butane extraction at one point, you know, with a friend in like a really unsafe environment, never wanted to do it again. You know, it was very sketchy and just, I'd never, you know, I, I never really, uh, at least in the beginning, butane hash was never appealing to me and I never really was interested in it. And I, I was always, you know, strictly just like flour and traditional hash, you know, was the only way I was really going to go. Um, and I had just seen, you know, the different, uh, yeah, the different things that, you know, people who had consumed hash oil and the horror stories you read about on like, I see mag of people like burning themselves and all this crazy shit with like just weird things. So it was, to me, it never seemed worth it. And, uh, but yeah, we tried it. We, we did try it once. I tried it. A friend, a friend of mine said he knew what he was doing and tried it. End up, you know, ended up getting nothing out of it. And yeah, that was, that's kind of a little bit of the family history and background on that. Yeah, that's cool. The only question I have, and this is also a question for Sam is at what point did the water enter for you when it came to collecting the trichomes or isolating them? I mean, not, not much after that, you know, like I said, most of what I had been doing was just sifting. I had upgraded obviously to like some pretty large sift screens and just was doing pretty large batch. This is before I really, you know, anybody had the static tech out there or anything, you know, this was literally just just separated keef and then carded uh, and then, you know, put through, put through one filtration and then carded on a, on a 70 mic screen. So, um, and cleaned up on that 70 mic. So that was mostly what I had done probably for five or six years, just, you know, young again, very young at this point. And then um, a friend of mine, Matt and Zach, who were also super influential in my life and with my cannabis, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Matt kind of was really in a bubble hash. He had made some 
made some bubble hash in the past. He had access to the bubble men, you know, bubble bags, and he knew how to work them and run them. And yeah, it was a lot different. You know, you, this wasn't necessarily as thought through back then, but you know, that was some of the first batches um, of water water hash I had made, and that was probably around like 2012. 2011, you know, is when that kind of water extraction, for me at least, kind of into entered into my life. But what I thought, you know, I ju- I just thought water just made it a lot easier. But still, all of the same kind of facets behind purification of resin were all there. You know, you still had to understand um, how to clean how to properly clean resin because resin doesn't just clean itself. People think you just stir this weed up and you pour it through your bag and it's just six star or something, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't work like that at all. There's really, you have to work and you have to clean a resin. You have to properly um, maintain a grow room. You know, you have to do a lot of things to, uh, to make a good hash. Otherwise chances are your hash is probably just going to be kind of chalky and, and not really that good. So, so yeah, that, that was kind of, that was kind of the evolution on that. And just from there, once I, once, once I started with water hash, it was kind of like, it was amazing. But the problem was, is you still couldn't do all the varieties, you know, sift. I was doing like OGs and, you know, all different kinds of stuff. And when I moved over to water hash, it was like, you couldn't run really OG, you know, and you couldn't, and I mean, that, there's a reason to that. And I could go into that too. That's a whole nother conversation. OG and chem, OG and GMO potentially yield the same, you know, on their dry weight conversion. You know, they just have a different dry weight conversion. You know, OG dries down twice the amount as like a chem variety will. So on a fresh frozen conversion rate, if you're running a thousand grams of chem, you'll get a 4% thousand grams of OG, you'll get a 2%, right? But when you dry that bud of OG out, it's half the amount as it is the chem when it's finally said and done and dried. So you actually were washing half the amount of OG as you were chem. So that's the reason it yielded half, you know? So, but the, the, yeah, and there's, so there's all these different things. And that, that was just a really cool thing to see all the differences and see all the variables change but all the things that over stayed the same what i think really truly made our water hash stand out and why we could six stars because you know i was initially producing this the, the dry sift it was it was full six star you know it was full melt it was it was we called it full melt clear dome back then you know you call it like this is before six star you know this was this is where it went on a screen and when you hit it, you know, a little bit away with some heat, it was going to clear dome and not be like a, a chalky bubble. It was going to be a full out clear bubble that was produced. You know, when it started to bubble, it was going to rapidly bubble too. And then it was going to fully melt away, you know. And then eventually a star system came up from some guys out in the Pacific Northwest and people just started calling it five star sticks star force, you know, all that stuff based on the amount of char it left behind. So. Right. And Sam, or same kind of question. Did you learn uh, the water process through Julian? And then my other point is, you know, you guys talk a lot about being uh, handmade. And so I, you, I believe one of you mentioned earlier that you're hand stirring 
And I think, Sam, you said you actually don't like to put too much in there because you feel like it can be almost counteractive uh, to washing. So I've seen some debate lately about, you know, there's always debate about like manually agitating it versus machine washing. But uh, some of this conversation now is saying that like they feel like hand washing can create these little spots that necessarily don't get agitated properly. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's an art form hand washing and, and, you know, there's some bag work that we use. We kind of pick the bag up and lift it off the bottom and, you know, certain strains you might not want to really agitate as hard or for as long. It's really about learning the cultivar and, and really what, Again, that, that can come back to the, the teacher plant, like hazelnut cream just keeps on giving up resin each round, you know, probably because like we've said that it's very hydrophobic, whereas maybe Tropicana cookies, it, it doesn't really need to be kind of beat up as hard or agitated as much as a better way to say that. So that's the nice thing about hand washing is having that connection with, you know, and Sure, in my head, I've thought like maybe you could use more variable speed and adjustments. And, and a lot of these machines, I mean, solventless technology is taking off massively. I mean, there's, there's guys with, with really sophisticated turnkey, uh, all stainless, you know, food grade labs. And, and that's been a big part of Julian and I's legacy together is we're constantly researching pumps and equipment that can double in the hash lab, you know, borrowing equipment from brewery, tri-clamps, stainless steel fittings, all that kind of work, as well as our cleaning practices in the lab are, we've refined them to the point where we have, you know, compressed air that's, you know, really clean on hand and all these like great features to help facilitate cleaning the equipment after the wash and you know it's there's so many factors to producing this at any kind of scale but then at the same i mean i guess the question was when did water you know I, I, again i i had uh isolator hash early early on and whenever i could find water hash of any kind i would jump on it and whenever there was material available to wash i would jump on it and in fact, this is a funny story. When I met Julian and we were morel hunting, I showed him some hash that I had made. And Julian, at that point, already having had, you know, leaps and bounds, tremendous progression with ice oil and just his eye for quality, you know, he, he turned his nose at it a little bit. But... <laughs> <laughs> But that's just yeah. the honesty, you know, we were, I was where I was and we are where we are, you know, and, and there's so much process and sharing and progression that, that it takes to, to create clean hash. And there, there's so much misinformation on, you know, I want to say that for overgrow and all that. And, and in those days they you know, use a drill with a paddle on it and only do it for five minutes and, you know, just all, but now it's become something of a dance and keeping your bag cold, keeping your bag in the freezer, just everything being cold and pre-chilling the pumps and pre-chilling the system and all these subtleties that team and, and I and, and Julian are, are doing on, on the weekly basis. 
it's uh it's really beautiful art form. That's that's all I can say. And and everyone that that does that, you know, I I have tremendous gratitude for your your hard work. Yeah, and I know we've been going a while, but Julian, you mentioned to me last time something that I also found interesting is that before realizing or people more, I guess, openly using controlled environments or, or people finding out that you needed to work in a cold environment, there was already kind of that understanding from working in cold environments, whether it was in the winter versus doing it in the summer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that would play a huge role in the evolution here. You know, when people got to produce hash, like hash traditionally, you think about like Afghanistan, right? Or think about like some of these these countries and think about the time where they're harvesting this resin to make dry seed, right? It's like towards the same time frame as here, towards the end of October into November is typically the harvest, sometimes even into, you know, December, depending on which part of the of the country you know they're in and the reason being the reason they bred these varieties to go that way and to go that long to go that far is because they wanted to do it in the coldest part of the year because it you know it's just by natural just just naturally when you look at when you look at resin right it's like it's kind of sticky it's kind of glossy it's really shiny so especially as temperatures rise and as heat increases you know, you're dealing with a much more stickier substance. So in order to keep it together, to keep it from coagulating, to keep it, you know, all of those things, you want to work in the cold, as cold of an environment as you can, you know, downwards, you could work as cold as, as, as 33 degrees, really, you know, just as just above the, the temperature of water freezing. I mean, if you wanted to, now that, potentially causes some like slushing so you really need to like keep your water moving at all times and have like agitators and things like that but yeah you can get that you can get it really cold now what's needed you know probably under 55 degrees you know would be nice you know that's what matt rise always said he was always like look as long as you're under 55 degrees you'll be doing all right and i think he's, he's he was pretty right about that so even like a cool basement or even just like an AC with a cool bot, um, that, that works really well. Cool bots are a couple hundred bucks. Um, the window AC units are a couple hundred bucks. You just do a slight modification with the cool bot on the window AC unit. And now you can get that thing down to like 45 degrees if you want. Um, and it's relative, you know, that's, that's probably the easiest way to do it. And if you buy some cheap insulation, you can insulate a room, pretty affordable, you know, another couple hundred bucks, you could probably put some insulation up in a room, you know? So it, it's, it's very doable to be able to, to do that kind of stuff. Even just running an AC unit is, is, is better than working in like a hot climate. So yeah, we used to work, we used to do a lot of the work we would save till the winter and we'd just literally open up all the, all the windows and just go at it. And that was cold. Uh, yeah, that was really cold. And, and, and dry, work. I guess. Yeah, very dry. And when you have cold and dry, dry is also, you know, fairly important, which is why, you know, I've always joked around with Sam. I think it's a little easier to make cash in Colorado here than it is in California. With, like as much humidity, you know, he's dealing with like sometimes, you know, he's on the coast there and yeah, sometimes the humidity is 
hundred percent or, you know, it's, it's high humidity up there. So being able to control your, to control your environment and know how to control your environment and how to preserve your resin in those conditions, you know, becomes a bit more of a task, you know, whereas in Colorado, we're extremely dry. We're typically sitting at like under 30, you know, so it's, and we, we do have some humidity spikes and whatnot and that'll happen. And, but it's, it's fairly, fairly cold or uh, dry here. So it's, yeah, we definitely have a little bit of a different environmental conditions to work, work with. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. And I can also see you guys learning something from that, which is also cool. Last three questions. One is actually not really even a question. It's just a comment and kind of wanted to commend you on your packaging. I think your new, your new packaging is all made from uh, recyclable material. So I thought that was cool and what seems to be a pretty wasteful industry. And in part, I understand a lot about that maybe is that, like you said about metric earlier, it's tied into some system that you just kind of have to do it. But Yeah. I mean, it's kind of unfortunate metric is very, uh, they put a lot of restriction on packaging um, and kind of the look of the package. So essentially the package has to be fully opaque, meaning no transparency. Um, the package has to be um, completely child resistant in on the actual piece that's touching the hash. So wherever the hash is touching, it has to be child resistant. And then there's, you know, obviously outside of the numerous labeling restrictions and and regulations that are out there with what can be put onto a package, um, what has to be put onto a package, you know, potency, batch numbers, dates, uh, warning labels to know that this stuff isn't FDA regulated or, or anything like that. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that has to go on a really tiny jar of cash basically. So, and yeah, because of that, there's a ton of waste, you know, with all the stickers and warning labels and boxes and jars and all that stuff, there's a ton of waste. So it's really, we try our best and we really, really, really encourage any packaging companies and packaging manufacturers out there, like start making recyclable packaging materials because those, that, that is, you know, we, we waste more here in cannabis than, than many, than a lot of other industries. We're an extremely wasteful, just overall wasteful kind of industry. So it's important to do our part and, and do our best to, to not to not have that excess waste and all that. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. Like I said, uh, I think if you can do what you can within the system, that that's good. So, so yeah, so props on that. And this is a kind of staple question now, and it's for both of you. If you both had to pick your three top favorite, either hash makers or hash brands. Outside of Dab Logic, which would those be? I mean, for me, you know, someone who was always really influential had been Matt Rise. You know, he was always pushing for quality, always pushing for higher standards, always pushing for pursuit of the highest connoisseur hash and cannabis that was out there, you know. So Matt Rise, you know, and people say what they want to say, whatever, but, you know, he... He had one of the first, you know, techniques widely available on the on the scene that had actually showed how to make 
microplaned hash and showed how to dry it and showed how to, you know, do those, those processes because every, everywhere you'd find, you'd find like cut it with a knife, chop it up on cardboard. It'd be like all these just really archaic techniques that just weren't producing high grade resins, you know? So yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, Matt Rise, obviously like Robert Connell Clark, just for the fact that he, uh, you know, wrote, wrote the book hashish i mean just for the fact that he's he's devoted majority of his life trying to understand hash and cannabis and uh and publishing it and promoting it across widely across the world you know i mean i think he was a huge he was a huge role model and again whatever people say they can say and but uh and then yeah uh you know any any afghani land race hash maker out there you know any of them that i see the the baba you know baba uh on instagram you know some of these guys out there like that are still just pursuing this kind of ancient methodology and these ancient techniques and still kind of just preserving these varieties and bringing them forth in the modern market yeah so that as far as hash makers go it's kind of it's kind of it for me sam cool yeah, I mean, that's a really hard one. I really enjoyed sampling Adam's hash. You know, that was simply Adam. I mean, that was that was a great experience to to get to see his craft and how he's refined that that method. So, you know, that's real. But, but you know, yeah, again, probably whoever made that Helter Skelter hash in uh, <laughs> at the Cannabis Cup. I mean, I, I remember smuggling it back in my shoe and taking cup hits of it and having, you know, a really profound, you know, opening and experience with, with cannabis that, you know, created a whole legacy now. So it's, you know, I, I can't think whoever made that enough. And, you know, Julian's hash, the hash that Julian makes is (laughs) really good. (laughs) Kalia extracts. I mean, everything I've tried is profound. Fresh press is profound. Anyone that does the work, and gets it out. Poppin Barclays was good. You know, it's all good. I have, I have nothing but support for for everybody. 710 Labs. I mean, I hate to, you said only three, but it's, you can't, you can't, you know, anyway. <laughs> no, I understand. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually funny enough. One of the harder questions. Uh, it's also kind of a weird, difficult question to answer, but I'm always curious and it always, I feel leads to some good, points or, or topics. So, so I appreciate you both sharing that with me. And last question for both of you again, if you could hear from anyone on the podcast, who would it be from? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, if you could get in touch with Robert Connell Clark and get an interview with him and, you know, talk about some of the origins and history of these things and how it, came here and what it was like before kind of hash blew up in America and what it was like before, you know, even hash was huge in, in Amsterdam and, and kind of how it, how it became big over there and what the influences of, of, you know, modern varieties have done to cannabis and, you know, some of the nuances with growing and, and, and some of these varieties for resin production and, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, um, that would be, yeah, that would be a good one for me. I've, you've, you've had a lot of the people I've already wanted to hear, so it's not, it's good. I've already got to hear a lot of, 
lot of awesome, amazing people and hear what they've had to say. And it's been really inspiring. And yeah, so, but yeah, as far as one you haven't done yet, I think Robert Connell Clark. I agree, dude. I, I literally, I think the last uh, interview, that was the same recommendation. And I mean, yeah, I, I'd love to. It'd be an amazing opportunity. I don't know that I get that opportunity. You know, like you said, uh, uh, yeah, we'll see. But hopefully that'd be really cool. I feel like that would be a, a really important interview, I guess is the best I could say it. Yeah, no, it definitely would. I'm sure he'd be willing to talk. I can probably do. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I have his email if you want to reach out to him. Yeah, we'll 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 see if we can make it happen somehow, man. I uh, I try to be as respectful as possible when requesting these interviews, but but for sure, man, I, I think that'd be something to pursue. Yeah. And you, Sam? That's a really hard one because you you've done you know so many great interviews. I I love you know, that you're staying progressive and love to hear from like, you know, people who are trending a lot right now, like, you know, laser cat and Atka and really just anybody that's, that's got flavors that people are interested in hearing about their, the legacy. I don't know how, if you're open to breeders as well, or anyone who's breeding and washing is those episodes are always uh, so good. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I think actually those are great recommendations. I'd, I'd love to talk to Laser Cat as well. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll have you guys help me out <laughs> with that link. But uh, yeah, the breeder part, I, I definitely, I think it's, again, it's a super interesting, important discussion, especially when it comes to hash, but they seem to be the hardest interviews to get, to be honest. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you guys so much for spending so much time uh, and talking twice and sharing everything that you shared and being so transparent. And uh, as I typically say, I I had a really good time. I hope that you guys did as well. And yeah, I'll just leave, you know, if there's anything else you want to say, I guess now's a good time. Yeah, no, no, obviously, thank you so much. I mean, this is been a blast being able to talk and really share and be open and, and kind of just go into hash a little bit. It's been, it's been a really big pleasure them on that part. And just want to give a shout out to all the guys and the girls in the lab, you know, who crank this stuff out, you know, each and every day we're there to, to, to clean every morning, you know, um, we're there to get these grams, you know, in jars. We're there to show who show up, you know, to to learn about this resin and to show who show up and, you know, every day to to, to do this work. You know, I want to give a big shout out um, to all those people, you know, and my my team and, and the team that surrounds me, especially, you know, big shout out to everybody. It's it's been a pleasure and it's been a blast and it's been an, been an honor to you know show some of this work with those people and, and and to receive you know some some amazing things back and also you know all the all the people who have uh, who are who are out there with with a five gallon bucket and a set of bags and a hair straightener doing this work you know. To, to all of them because like truly that's that's where this was born from and that's 
that's that's where the joy and the light exist and uh yeah thank you very much for having us on really appreciate it obviously all the cultivation team you know everyone who puts in hard work to produce this clean resin you know jeremy mike the list goes on jay jay man so yeah thank you tremendous gratitude thank you for listening appreciate everyone yeah thanks sam and thank you julian and thank you to everybody who stuck around with us this long we'll catch you next time Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.